the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we get started introducing today's guest, I just want to mention I've got a Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider throwing me a buck or so if you can spare it. We are picking up with part five of the Ego Book series and kind of covering the last quarter of Max Stirner's The Unique and Its Property, starting with My Intercourse and then completing the book. But... We've got returning champions, my good friend John Zigtrman from Beep Beep Lettuce. We've got Adam from Acid Horizon, and we've got Elliot Rosenstock. Great to be back. What's up? It's so good to be here. Fantastic. I'm glad we could all we could all get together for this final episode. That, that's perfect. That's a perfect what synthesis of some kind. That's like the universal team, the the union of egoists. Yeah. We've all mutually made this book our affair. That's right. We're having an affair of this book. I got to say this: the first half of this book, or this portion of the book, I think in particular, my intercourse was just, I was pretty excited as I was going through the reading. So I'm really excited to dive in. Yeah, this is a real banger fest part of the book. You can tell this is kind of what everything else is is leading up towards. It's not quite the same drastic change of pace as reading Capital, where you're like, oh, I've slogged through 400 pages of linen. But uh, <laughs> it is a little bit of the same same experience. Like this, this felt like a culmination of so many of his ideas. We've, through the course of the episodes, talked a lot about how Sterner is this sort of proto-post-structuralist. And I think, at least for me, when I was reading the first half of this section of the book, I had Alice Say was jumping out at me, Foucault, a little bit of Lacan as always, and then even some shades of Deleuze and Guattari even, I picked up on a bit. It's really interesting to see how Sterner sort of presages all of these theoretical strains later on. And I mean, obviously, this looking back at the history of it, German ideology is probably the locus for this and how much Sterner influenced Marx. Reading how did back, Sterner influence Marx? Did Sterner influence Marx? I feel oh, like absolutely. You, read, you read Capital and everything's about these kinds of things which are in <clears throat> these other things, right? The Hegelian versus Sterner's that if I say I, then I'm still like divorced from my property. Well, I think how, prior, how, how did Sterner influence Marx? I would say probably, I mean, German ideology in particular, not only like, so that's where I think you see it a lot more than but, specifically capital whenever like that's I think that's like a later Marx. Yeah, I've heard it tossed around that in in kind of a way I've heard this from people who like Sterner and, and Marx. I'm not sure how much it holds up, but that after Marx was like horrified at Scherner's writings, it kind of made him <laughs> redouble down yeah. on uh, materialism and trying to set everything up in like a really rigorously materialist framework, which is an interesting lesson to take from Sterner. I don't know if it's the right one, but that's, mm. that's the credit of influence that I usually hear talked about. So in that case, you would be an antithetical person to Marx in terms of what, is it, what does it mean to have something, right? Mm-hmm. What does it mean for something to be your property? And I think it's easy to get on the Marx bandwagon if you're just 
talking about intellectually because Marx is it's very um, kind of a refined sense of dialectics. The quantity of this turns into this thing. And then when you have this much of this thing, it turns into this thing. So it kind of feeds the, um, it feeds that kind of intellectual endeavor. And when you talk to Marxists or you talk to certain leftists, you get the sense, wow, this guy's really smart. I don't know if you've had that experience, but, and then, but then you get the experience, wow, this guy's, there's, there's like a vicious, intense boredom sometimes <laughs> that you can get from, that you can get, get from the smart life. But so Sterner's like to go back to subjectivity, to go back to psychology in the individual kind of relation to the outside is of course what Marx doesn't really do. Right. Right. I, mean, I, I think a lot of Stirner is carried up into Marx, in, mainly in the form that, I mean, because Eng, Engels wrote a lot of Stirner, Marx wrote a lot of Stirner, and I think you can sort of tell the break with Feuerbach is around sort of 1844, 1845, sort of in the wake of the destruction of, of Feuerbach by um, Stirner's instructions, very Ben Shapiro term, I don't know. But, and I think what, what is carried on from Stirner, even, if, even as Marx leaves him behind, is, um, is a healthy distaste for the forces of real abstraction. and an understanding of the effects that society, as we'll see in the Aristotle's text, you know, society is an enclosure of space that maintains individuals within a certain fixed position of an identity of a social relation through an exercise of power. And I think that's definitely something that Marx definitely carries through. And I think, yeah, definitely, I think there's also an aspect of antithetical um, relation between Marx and Stirner in, the, in how positivist he becomes in the German ideology. It's, it sort of carries itself on, and there's a sense in which in German ideology even, Marx is saying to Stirner, you know, I can give you what you want more than you can actually do it yourself sort of thing. I can give you the, the owner in the, uh, affirm, in the self-affirming worker. And um, I mean, I, I think Blumenfeld in the book, All Things Nothing Me, puts this fantastically. He says that Stirner is like a first-person Marxism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the way I, I love to think about it. Yeah, that ranks pretty true, I think. To answer, go back to Elliot's question about this influence. So I read, I actually did an episode that I released last week about, and we read from, from fucking Saul Newman, did a collection of essays and about Stirner. And there's one, it's um, Max Stirner and Karl Marx and Overlook Contratemps by Paul Thomas that sort of goes through this, a little bit of the historical relations and writings between, because I think there's a letter where Engels writes to Marx after having read The Unique and Its Property and is like, yeah, it's important that we need, that we take this sort of relatively egoist approach to, to communism and so forth. And so I think even in the like dialectical model of Stirner writing The Unique and Its Property and then Marx sort of responding to that in sort of a dialectical relationship at minimum is important to the development of, of Marx overall. Yeah. I wonder, as we're kind of going through this, I guess the question that in my mind is like Marx and Hegel and Stirner is the question of what is this kind of role of force in the world? What is real force and what is kind of a spook or a yeah. phantasm? Right. And how like Freud, a Freud, like we could talk about how Freud approaches society, but uh, how, how Lacan approaches society and how Stirner also approaches society and the forces in society. Stirner has the tendency to miss material forces, which do have an effect, a certain right. effect. Yeah. And I think Marx might overvalue the phantasms and those are abstract. So maybe as we go through, we can like keep in mind these questions of what is, what is, what do we make of society, right? Is kind of like maybe one to sum it up really quickly. What do we make of all this? So I get very sorry, strong. Sorry to phrase that like a therapist. I, that's just like, <laughs> that's, that's just how I talk now. Reflex, some pe some, sometimes people be like, don't say, don't talk like a therapist. I say, it's too late for me, son. 
too late. I was watching uh, The Sopranos the other night, and Tony says something like, I know too much about the unconscious now. Oh, yeah. Was, was, he's <laughs> like, I know all sorts of shit. I, I love that. I love when people like take an undergraduate psychology class, and they're like, I am too woke now. That's right. Exactly. Too, well, I think there is a point when you do, there is a point where you start to see behind the veil, and that's very shattering. I think that's why there's a lot of psychosis in like young adulthood, which is you kind of have the world and then a certain point, you're not really introduced to the antithetical notion of your like reality and then suddenly it's boop. And then it's not well developed, but it's like the hint of the, as Stern says, the back of things. And that can be very jolting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think that's, I think that's what Tony experienced when he said, <laughs> I understand psychology now. That's, yeah. that's the exact experience that's making me retreat into grilled meats in my adulthood, just as mm. I have something <laughs> still safe and manageable. Uh, sausage swirling and everything. Yeah, exactly. Sausage. Look, I'm a beautiful soul. I have absolute knowledge. It's fine. <laughs> I don't need them to need them to save my e iPod. I'm going to find the, I'm gonna <laughs> e find the post. Yeah, here it is. Here's the post. <laughs> yeah, there it is. <laughs> too, too much about, about the subconscious, subconscious now. Too much yeah. for what? That's too much to do man, what? That's the face of a man who misses uh, when he was way more confident about the world because he was just wrong about everything and it was fine. So that's the fun bit, right? Like when you're, you know, I don't know, like 15 or, or 18 years old, you're like, I know everything and you don't. Everything you think is incorrect. But you have the unbridled enthusiasm and optimism of that. Trying to slog through like actually developing coherent positions is incredibly tiring. People don't like to talk about that. Why most of the teenagers reading this book should be forced to read the phenomenology of spirit first. Otherwise, you know, it's <laughs> Exactly. I don't know about that. <laughs> who who I feel is shouting, like, read I, the phenomenology outside my house? Show yourself, coward. <laughs> I will never read the phenomenology. You, can, you need the concept in order to rebel against it. <laughs> well, sure. I feel like it would be so, so, if you're like interested in kind of getting into Sterner, to like throw Hegel at somebody, it's just cruel. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's fair. I think. Fear of the beginning of wisdom. But but for the kids, I think what is maybe most interesting with Sterner, and this is what I think excites me the most about Sterner, is this proto post structuralist post structuralism yeah. or structuralism mm -hmm. that he mm -hmm. lays out. And like I said, strongly in this at least first portion of of my intercourse, like early on, I think the first half, it feels like there's a lot of out to say, a lot of Foucault in particular, like those two thinkers. Obviously, I think that. Foucault was taught or like tutored by Althusser, and then I'm sure that Deleuze was as well, at least taught by Althusser, obviously Derrida as well. So mm -hmm. like that legacy, I think that you can probably draw a clear line back to Marx and I mean, a pretty clear line, right? To Marx and Stirner even, if you really go back and investigate the historical development of Marx and well, his and like ideology and his response to, to Stirner. The influence of Stirner has always been like kind of unfortunately piggybacked on the influence right. of, of Marx and Hegel. And so even when he doesn't feel like he's directly in the foreground of somebody's thought, there are these little tendrils of him that you'll get every once in a while. And it's like the controversy over whether or not Nietzsche had ever read the right. works of Stirner. It's like, you know, obviously that's going to be there because people's people's minds wander and these ideas don't come from nowhere you know they're yeah they're pretty abstract they're pretty systematized in in a lot of ways so it's it's tough to just kind of arrive at them spontaneously you know who we don't talk about ever who's that? probably for good reason is schopenhauer dude schopenhauer is in the geist <laughs> right now big time he really is i've been thinking a lot about schopenhauer in the because i'm also reading 
libidinal economy, beginning to like formulate this notion of desire as will to power or will in Schopenhauer. Yeah. And then also in terms like of Nietzsche's declared who he declares he read. He says he read Schopenhauer. And then also obviously like will and representation. So the, you know, the signification element of that, like there's a little bit teasing of like a semiotic approach at, you know, at some degree with Schopenhauer. So I've heard that actually, believe it or not, a lot of people I think assume that perhaps Nietzsche had or had read Stirner, but I don't think that there's anything that backs that up. So that's yeah, why I have not. a little bit of evidence actually about that. Um, you got yeah. something? So, um, so one, he did read with great intrigue uh, Friedrich Lang, which is uh, History of Materialism. And in that, there's a section on Stirner, and it says that Stirner is like the most foremost philosopher of the will. And the fact that if Nietzsche, Nietzsche would have read that and just thought, fucking hell, but any more concrete evidence <laughs> in the essay from Untiny Meditations on the Use and Abuse of History for Life. Um, he's mainly responding to a guy called Hartman and his book, The Philosophy of the Unconscious. And the parts he's responding to are the parts explicitly in which Hartman uh, is responding to Stirner. So he would have had... Oh, interesting. He would have had some idea of Stirner. I mean, he was, he was always kind of around the sort of young Hegelian scene, I guess, because he, he was... Uh, he did know, I think, David Strauss, who was like one of the earliest young Hegelians wrote uh, The Life of Jesus Critically Examined, but I don't know if he was one of the getting absolutely wankers at the back room of Hipple's wine bar, Sterner <laughs> kind of young Hegelians, I'm not so, sure. But there is definitely some evidence for their, uh, for their um, uh, closeness in terms of who read who. Oh, that's that's cool. interesting. So it's like uh, maybe Nietzsche was kind of a 90s jam band revivalist hanging out with all these old deadheads who are like, oh yeah, I used to be a roadie for Fichte, you know? <laughs> The eye, man. See, see, the see eye. this is why you're, you're the you're the tweet the, the tweet master. That's know? right. <laughs> like sometimes I read some of your tweets. I'm just like, mm, that's mm. <laughs> class. <laughs> I used to be a roadie for Fichte. See, that's the kind of shit. That's fantastic. That's the kind of shit that posts that right now. Thousand followers. As soon as as soon as I can start thinking of that. I demand that uh, you post that right now yeah, we're in the middle of this podcast. <laughs> He's going for it. Hell yeah. <laughs> the world is will and representation. There it is. That's right. Sums it up. <laughs> in terms of structuring the talk, like I said, I wanted to, I guess, walk through maybe some of these sort of shades of Althusser mm-hmm. Foucault and then transition over into some of the psychoanalytic. Because I think there is, Schoener's even doing a little bit of critique of Oedipus to some degree. I don't know, some kind of proto- psychoanalytic talk and obviously that's ties us into hegel and lacan mm-hmm. at least argumentation and methodology right and then to drive that further there's some even libidinal economy type things that i think would even perhaps plug into the schopenhauer will as well and then some dng stuff and then we've got some some fantastic dunks on liberalism which i was sort of blown away that sterner is dunking on liberals so i like how it gets a whole main section it's not a subsection liberalism dunks <laughs> i mean <laughs> my you know my structure is is very loose let's put it that way so I, I will have to force some Christianity talk into the discussion, though, because it's not, not the main villain. Uh, like, yeah, he spent a lot of time on that. I didn't want to focus so much on that critique. We can sort of start out with, with Foucault, or Althusser Foucault would probably be the better way to, to focus on it. So, of course, Foucault, known for his critique of power, which I think a lot of anarchists, including myself, like, I don't think I'd be an anarchist if it wasn't for the influence of Foucault and his discourse on power mm-hmm. specifically. But he also, I think, resonates in this sort of historically constructed categories are 
identity-wise, there's some overlap with Sterner as far as rejecting that sort of, or kind of having this sort of quasi-materialist understanding for how the different categories of identity are created through ideology, maybe. So I guess I want to open up to the discussion of the potential links between Sterner as an anticipation of certain Foucaultian things. I guess the basic... I mean, I think we'd probably need to start with Althusser first because... That's probably the more direct link is obviously I think the Sterner influences Althusser primarily and then Althusser is the hub for Deleuze, Derrida, Deleuze, um, mm. and then obviously um, mm. Foucault as well. And I'm sure there's others that I'm missing. Foucault might be a bit easier in terms of talking about sort of, because when we're talking about the influence on, possibly influence on Althusser, um, yeah, then we're talking about the, reprodu- the ideological structures by which capitalism is reproduced. Whereas if we're talking about the influence on Foucault and the notion of power, we're talking about how these things are originally formed, I guess. Because it's like, more like Foucaultian ship, Sterner, I always I sort of read it as that stuff about society and about the enclosure. And when you enclose individuals and their intercourse, then that's when you can sort of get this reproductive function of ideology that's keeping them in this enclosure. Yeah, I noticed a lot of the quotes that we have in here leading into this section, Sterner felt like he was right on the edge of basically saying, like, is it any wonder that barracks and schools resemble prisons? Yeah. He he was really going every direction except except exactly saying it. Did I tell you this last time that I actually had to explain to you, like, in terms of why you don't just medicate somebody who's disruptive in like a group. I actually, I, I gave them the Foucault quote and they were like, that was good. Can you send that? I really like that. So <laughs> <laughs> it does have relevance. I think when you're, when you're wise, such as us, us men, us manly men here, wise men. I don't want to identify no, as a man. That's react. a fixed idea. Okay. My bad. Dog. Get that shit out of here. <laughs> My bad dog. Yeah. No. Uh, reactionary abstraction. That's right. As, as exactly. stern, yeah. Reactionary abstraction. But in terms of um, the old Greek category of the wise, speaking of reactionary abstraction, let's go back to some. <laughs> but it, it's more concrete in this sort of way, which is, and especially when you're talking about Sterner, it's worth talking about the I, the, what an individual can do. When you're reading all this, all this kind of material and you're working through these things, you're, you're going to interact with most people who are involved in society, involved in, let me get really stupid here. Most people that are locked in the matrix, okay? Most of, most people that are blue-pilled, that aren't freaking Zizek third-pilled, like, <laughs> like we are, that, you know, they're not going to, they're going to be sort of moved by these forces of society a lot. And they're not kind of questioning a lot of it. Or when they do question it, they get locked into this other categorical mm. method of thinking. Uh, we're coming up to Althusser and state apparatuses and kind of individual, the individual's relation to state apparatuses, which I look forward to what you have to say about Cooper. I'd like to hear stories you guys have where, where you've interacted with people. I don't know if, if this is your experience, where you've interacted with people and this has become relevant in your day-to-day actions, in your kind of like... Have you ever used Sterner or Althusser to sort of third pill like a cringe normie? Maybe not in a one-on-one <laughs> conversation. I produce oh enough content that talks about it. <laughs> yeah, right. I exactly. hope that, that that would have some measure of That's true. Mm-hmm. I don't know, that maybe, maybe in person. I, in the, there's, we have a channel in my podcast Discord called The Library where we just talk about theory. And I think just some Marxists in there have made me come around to s- certain more structural ways of analyzing things. I think so also have I made them be a little bit more appreciative of subjective analysis and, and coming at things from, from a, a, an arbitrarily subjective point of reason 
listening. There, there's that maybe, but those are, you know, those are mostly just people I think that are already willing to listen to me yeah. for one reason. Well, or that's, but that's not, I think that's good still. I was thinking of a bad analogy and then I was, I was oh, I'm just going to throw that all out. But my analogy was Sterner is kind of like a gun and then a bullet. And he, so it kind of lacks its, oh, well, Sterner's not good because it doesn't talk about making missiles, which take a lot of people, <laughs> blow up a lot of people. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> but then I was starting to think there's a reason why, why Sterner's still worthwhile and why analogies kind of fail here, because there's plenty of people that talk about large apparatuses that are created and how they affect people, but it doesn't really give them anything. Well, I like um, the so analysis of Sterner as a gun, right? Because that's a little yeah. bit true to form because he, it's the same problem you run into with real guns, which is that the left and the right can both use them. There's a whole history of weird right-wingers being like, oh yeah, Sterner, he's he's our guy right up there with Ayn Rand. And then everybody who actually reads Sterner for the content instead of to reinforce their political opinions is, no, we that's our gun. We want to shoot that gun. Yeah, now, I don't even know if that holds up either, but uh, Gun Sterner is my new head case. Yeah, Gun so. Sterner. Sterner is more of a match, you know. Yeah. Because the, the way he talks about history, but no, it could be the gun, I guess. It could be like the gun uh, that, you know, that Gavrilo Princip shot started World War One. <laughs> yeah, that's actually not a bad Because the way he talks a, about A gun to match synthesis, if you will. Yeah. Yes. A gun that shoots <laughs> if matches. It's a flint, um, if it's a flint, no, it could be a flintlock. Sterner, okay, objectively speaking, <laughs> objectively speaking, Sterner is a gun which shoot matches which light midair, yeah. which is proven <laughs> through science of logic. Okay, sorry. Yeah, because he talks about history so much, and the idea that, you know, Rothbard, even, it's not even particularly an ironic context, he says later in the text, he says, oh, actually, sort of society is sort of like our natural condition, but now we just have to break out of it. He sort of, he's, and he says, you know, I've given all these tools of education, I can restrain myself, my desires, and I can do, I can do, Crit- uh, critique, but there's still this last bastion of abstraction as such that needs to be defeated. No wonder. I mean, he, 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 it sounds like he's building on a lot of achievements and then sort of setting the gun off. And I mean, I, I think he's building off of absolute knowledge, but I don't. I don't know. He's like within the one, you could say, in terms of. But he's always negating absolute knowledge mm-hmm. in terms of he comes up against all these. I love at the beginning is I don't need to take up each cause and show you that it's nothing. It's like, so let's take up each cause and show you that it's nothing. <laughs> but yeah, in terms of he is engaging with, ab- you could say the absolute or whatever. It's like he's, he's taking it away from thinking and making it sort of practical. It's, it's, like, it's like in the, um, mm-hmm. the, first, the, essay, the essay he does before this, the false prince of our education, he's just, well, we, we've taught each other like how to be autonomous spirits, but not how to be like creatively autonomous spirits. So there's an autonomy, but the autonomy you're partaking in is always restricted within what's laid out in the system, whereas sort of after the system, it's like, I mean, the system, like, is a, the system of, of German idealism is an ego. So, you know, the ending of the philosophy of mind by Hegel, the system closes itself out, it says, what does it do? It says it, it has self-enjoyment. Like, and so it's like, well, yeah, substance is subject. So fuck you. Actually, I don't need. To, I don't need to go for the philosophy of right. I've already read the book, and now I'm just going to go go be self enjoyment, self enjoying. Sorry, the BTFO. No. <laughs> to me, see that even kind of is going towards this almost the libidinal con- economy aspect mm. of desire as as will that I was sort of mentioning earlier. I think there's maybe a a pathway there. But yeah, I guess if want to like try and mix in way into the Foucault helps this stuff, I guess probably start with. Sterner's definition of society. Sterner is taught, trying to think about you know, human interaction. And society, uh, you, take, you take the German word uh, Gesellschaft and um, takes it down to its etymological root, its relation to a hall. You know, so, so literally just you know, a drinking hall, forum, 
etc. It's it's an enclosure. It's an enclosure in which um, people hold being in this enclosure in common, but really as, as an enclosure, as something that closes people into it. Uh, society is actually something that holds people within itself. It holds them in common with itself. Right. And so it's it's a framing device that restricts their intercourse. And society is essentially a molding, uh, enclosing force of power because power structures the contours of this hall you know what literally what powers can erect it and what powers can sort of allow entry and allow exit for example and that's why he immediately moves on the example of the prison where he thinks that, you know it's it's the prison is literally an enclosure and it's also is structured to um engage with people's bodies in terms of what they can do but Scherner also talks about it primarily in terms of um in terms of people internalizing the laws of the prison, because if they don't, if they don't have technically, they don't have to follow them. They don't have to act like prisoners. They can sort of do this very and they're whimsical, most like absurdist comedy of just like acting like no. But here's the thing: that if you're in a prison, this is what I. This is like my main kind of symptomatic mm. read of Sterner, which is if you're in a prison, to what extent do those ideas have actual force, which you can't simply dismiss. He thinks they do. He he thinks they definitely do. He thinks they definitely do. He thinks, you know, that the the prisoner is possessed. I mean, possession isn't a force, you know, it's it's an actual force. Yeah. um, Like like ideology, right? Possession, in a way, is discipline. Yeah. It's it's discipline. It it doesn't just physically refute you in in people who also train in discipline of disciplining people beating the shit out of you. It also makes you beat the shit out of yourself. And uh, why does the stock, what is the function of this? societal stockholm syndrome you could say mm, yeah is like why, why does this why does this keep appearing right right why does the prisoner internalize the morals of the guard is this now here's where freud comes in because the guard is daddy yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right For, but in terms of there's a power relation there's a relation of um moral betterness and also actual power over the person so maybe this is also where Deleuze comes in in terms of yeah. there's this radical in lacan in terms of we're back at the question of where Deleuze and Lacan and Freud all split, which is yes. what, what is your relation to this, this power in Sterner? Of course. Right. Well, isn't the question with Sterner, it's like, uh, it, I mean, he talked about this previously in the book, is that like, you know, to be inwardly free is not the same as to be outwardly free. So you can be in like a prison, whether that's a, a metaphorical one or just a literal building, and the conditions of the prison will force you to act in a certain way. And... The, the question is, is it's like, do you want to accept the, the false inward freedom of just like going along with things and making, trying to, to make nice with your circumstances? Or do you want to declare some measure of ownness and like actually gain something that you want instead of just trying to be rid of the circumstances that you're in? That's where Stern is sort of drawing on the the master-slave dialectic a little bit, right, in that conversation, which I think sort of has yeah, some purchase so. in, in terms of how the sort of ideological structure of society works, because I was thinking about this in the context, and like my last episode, I was doing an egoist uh, communist discussion and like had this kind of epiphany moment that someone like Jeff Bezos is sort of, even they're intensely spooked because they are they're not really pursuing their self-interest in the terms of like a jouissance in the terms of personal enjoyment by continuing to work. Why would you work if you're Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or any of those type of people that are supposedly at the top of the capitalist hierarchy and society? Oh, yeah. 
they're they're addicts is what it's they like, are not to a, shit on addiction or anything but right like, that's what gets you to that level of amassing power but that's because you know power is addictive it, it and capital is addictive it's it becomes a mode of capture in your mm. pursuit of it 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 lays a claim to you right in turn so yeah i mean that's the problem and that's like the, the classic anarchist critique of organized power right well if we form a state or a vanguard party then pretty yeah. soon it'll then it becomes be like its own spook. state it becomes a spook. Yeah. yeah it's got this whole well, power ideological yeah. force to it actual power animates people in terms of like these it just can't help but to because then you have all these when you have actual power power over something when you have property you have, you have to, power you, right? you you well even you just have to come to a relation with it whatever that relation is you never escape that you then have a relation that you didn't have with without power. So that's why right. sort of you get that kind of paradox in terms of what happens when quantitative power goes up. And at that point, you need psychology. I would love to see if I was like a Chinese Communist Party member. Oh, man. First of all, I'd probably get killed. But second of all, <laughs> <laughs> but maybe like this, this fantasy world, it would be really interesting to like develop something that's a psychology of power in order to maintain, to not become a red fascist right. kind of drove. Drody, <laughs> dialectical Brody, a red fascist Drody, if you will. Because I even think it's important to distinguish. My point was more so like to distinguish between this sort of Marx's critique. One of the critiques is that Turner's just doing bourgeois individualism. And I don't think that argument holds up whenever you apply it to someone like Jeff Bezos or, or Gates or someone like that, who is ostensibly acting outside of their own in a sense, their own personal, they're not being greedy enough as far as their own enjoyment. They're well, uh, yeah, sort of Jeff, wrapped Jeff up Bezos, in Jeff Bezos has ceased to be a person, right? He's like a culminative series of process, even just in his personal life. You don't live at that level of power and, and wealth and influence and maintain your, I don't even know what, what you would call it, conversational integrity. Imagine trying to even talk to him. His life is just yeah. a million flows of, mm. of capital and, and trajectories of wealth. That, that's what he's completely subsumed by. I, I met Peter Thiel once, Peter Thiel, you know, the guy. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, you know the guy. You, know, you all, all know the guy. I didn't say one word to him. even though he, even though he looked at me like he knew me because I was on Justin Murphy's podcast <laughs> a, few, a couple of times. So he looked at me and I was like Peter Thiel knows who I am. But he looked at me. I didn't say anything to him. Then I went to see Moldbug speak. It was a very reactionary evening. Then I saw Moldbug because it was Los Angeles and they Justin Murphy threw an event in Los Angeles. I'm like I'm definitely going to that. And then I brought my friend who was the only person of color in the entire place. It was, it was a whole thing and. Yeah, because like you said, he is what is what would it mean to even talk to him, really? If somebody's life is that imbued by by like multi million or billions of dollars, then at a certain point, conversational integrity, all of your conversation will be so melted by the fact that you have this power in the world and this command of capital yeah. and force, right? You just there's just nothing there's, I have nothing to nothing to say to the guy. Yeah, the things that come to mind are like give me a million dollars. Uh, <laughs> like, hey, what's up? Or, but even the fact that I'm going through this process, it's, here's a man with power over the world in, in some sense, right? So ultimately, the. Oh, yeah. Is it any wonder not play, that they all like know? retreat into their <laughs> enclaves? They, they, they exactly. form these like millionaires clubs. I used to work across the street from one, and it was like the 20th century club. And I asked the old guy on the job site what that was. And he was like, oh, that's where all the millionaires would go to hang out with each other for like 50 years until they all died. And I was like, oh, 
cool, you know, but it's, it's the same. You see a, a politician, they're always hanging out with other politicians. Once you're above a certain register of power in fields that actually affect everybody's lives, how do you talk to a Starbucks employee? You just don't. Like this. Aha. Uh -huh, yes. Oh, civilian. Of course. <laughs> lovely. A lovely day. The material Are conditions you still talking? of like, I'm tired of you. The material conditions of those people become completely divorced from the average person in, in a sense. On the other side of it, though, they're sort of, if you're going like Lacanian, those people are going to be more aware of their lack than anyone because they, yeah. they experience lack more intensely at that level than we Maybe. ever could. At the well, it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's like the more you get... <laughs> It's the old, the more you get, the more you want, or like the, the, more, you, the more you have, the harder it is. It, what, what is it that... Um, it's like Zeno's paradox. It's, I, it I think, the, phrase, I think the phrase is, well, maybe the CEO does work 270 <laughs> times harder than you. Well, no, I just, I just mean in the sense that like, you'll hear people talk about like, oh, contradictions in society won't go away once we have you know, a, a global socialist revolution. They'll actually become much more intense because they won't be about such you know the it's almost like the more trivial they are the more profound they are like you have a billion dollars you have every need met and you're still sad you're way more upset with yourself for feeling that emptiness than somebody who knows exactly why their life is fucked up yeah definitely i don't think you're gonna get rid of the contradictions under under um under any sort of marxist revolution otherwise you would simply like i mean for me you try to destroy the motion by which difference would create itself i mean contradiction is productive it literally creates subjectivities so you yeah, can do, like, a, make it a lot less miserable. <laughs> I'm turning into a real Marxist Francis Fukuyama over here. Trying <laughs> to live at the end of the dialectic. But what's at the end? Wait, what's at the end? But what's the end of the dialectic? Being Jeff Bezos? It's to be nothing. To be, <laughs> it's to being, be nothing. becoming Milkman. To, to get bitten by a dog and die. To be nothing. To be reincorporated <laughs> into the whole, the one, at the last instance. <laughs> I've never been more determined than in the last instance, I gotta say. That's right. <laughs> to be the gun and not to not to worship the the boots <laughs> in a sense. I mean that's like the simplest form is we're thinking of things besides boot worship or licking. At least a very abstract kind of basis for Maxner. It's like what else can you do besides lick the boots? But one of the most interesting things about this text though is that no one actually has power, really, in this book. There's not one, it's not, it's, no one is declared to be the person to be. The boot, the boot is a spook. Mm, yeah, that's the, so the, boot, the state? No, we live in the We live in the We live in the boot and we're cleaning it from the inside all the time. Because there's, oh, damn. the only person that has any power in the text is, is the abstraction itself. It's kind of like, you know, the design is, you know, can I speak to the CEO of capitalism, please? Yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> no, you fucking can't. But she throws little things immediately. Like, people reproduce these conditions as if there is a god even when they don't believe in it. Oh, no, um, that's the... Because, because that's why it's pure. When you're in a workplace and the boss leaves and everybody actually works harder and does better work without the boss <laughs> over their shoulder, you don't actually need that figurehead present to reproduce the system that they represent. In fact, sometimes it's better if they're absent. Like, isn't that the whole appeal of Christianity is the absent universal, the absent absolution that you can only get to after death? I would say that that repressive hypothesis versus, I guess, what Foucault really does, right? You know, in his analysis of what is it, the, which book am I thinking of? Not History of Sexuality, but what's the one that starts out with the drawing and quartering? I fucking, I'm blanking. Uh, discipline and punish. Yeah, discipline and punish. So, like, if you think about it, it's very similar in this 
dichotomy between repressive mm-hmm. state apparatus where the state is physically and you know there's very distinct mm-hmm. boundaries from which you do not cross to this more like capitalist Foucauldian approach where it's a lot more distributed and this sort of emperor has no clothes way that power sort of operating behind the scenes. Personality as such, because personality has distinctly Hegelian, but also like very sort of old Roman law tinge to it that Sterner talks about quite a bit throughout the book, as well as Hegel does in the culture section of spirit, the phenomenology, and in the much detail in the philosophy of right. Because personality is as such the potential to own property, the idea to enter into contracts, to hold properties your own, to alienate your property. And personality as such, as pure, actually ends up as being the concept in, in Hegel. Hegel, as the concept, has a pure personality, but this pure personality never actually returns to the individual it, it itself. The personality is always um, in the form of rights. It's this system of laws, which, yes, may have a king for Hegel, but this king is a purely functional um, matter. So personality is what's being struggled against here. And personality, to go back to the Roman law thing, is, is essentially, essentially just... To, as defined in Roman law, the capacity to be a, a legal property owner. But you can't be a legal property owner for Sterner because if, for as long as there is law, you can't actually have, um, you can't actually be an owner of yourself. You can't be autonomous. So it's actually, there is, there's no individuality here. There's only personality, which I guess is a lot, we don't, and it's not, it's not necessarily a distinction we need to uphold, but I just think it's cool to think about it in terms of sort of how, he, how he's writing. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think about this in the sense of, property as the dual meaning of property so it's the sort of marxian property like whatever but then there's also the property of who of what the i is or like what i take as well the i is multiple right i mean to state the obvious right but in terms of like the i is kind of a process of the things that you're thinking the personality when they say personality it's it's almost like something that like an assemblage of enunciation. Well, it's like a relation to a thing. Another way to look at it: if you look at a personality type, is you, all the personality types describe relations to things. Even like MBTI, you could say introverted or ex, but it, like ultimately, a personality is how how are you relating to and what what sort of material. what sort of relate right. yeah what sort of relation are you crafting? It's material, but also abstraction. These abstractions mm. and absences which hold power. I think yeah. the interesting thing someone said before, which was it's the people don't have power in Sterner. The only thing that has power is these kind of abstractions, which are like non-existent. Which is so pretty Foucauldian, kind of, right? Yeah, it's like the most power is, is in the thing which is absent. or Which abstract. is Lacanian. <laughs> which, too, right? which is Lacanian. It's a very Lacanian, it's a very yeah. psychological thing. Right. Yes, it is. It is Lacanian. And, <laughs> and yeah, you're right. You're right. It's definitely a Lacanian <laughs> idea, but it's, <laughs> but it's also critical theory. This is like the essence of contemporary critical theory, which is Badu, which is Zizek, uh, Zizek, <laughs> uh, which is that the void, that there's no, the one is not the thing. It's this kind of, there's the void. And then, and then, uh, you know, the power that this void has, right? Power of the sign of the void or the power of absence. Contemporary critical theory is all about absence. It's not about dialectical material. It's not about labor value within wool. Uh, That's kind of passe, honestly. Where we're at contemporarily in the 21st century, unless you're literally like, you know, the urbanomic crew in there. They're basically concerned about reproducing whatever Nick Landis said last, or Resident <laughs> said last, or the opposite, which is like, that, or you know, whatever. A lot of contemporary critical theory is based off of there is no absolute; there is only the absence. But I, you know, the absolute is is supposed to have within it 
these kind of absences. But I think the, the Zizek kind of emphasis on Hegel, which is these things are kind of fragmented, but the fragments are partially these absence sorry to go on i can tell I'm oh it's fine that. no that was just, that was the tone is switching but no but the, but the absences and fr- and the fractures are these kind of things which are sucking us in the cracks are pulling in the real material how do you square that with sterner and egoism though i mean i wrote a whole that absolute I wrote, that, how does that sounds well yeah i guess I wrote, I wrote a whole book on it right yeah 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 i wrote, wrote a whole book but i mean the book is about is uh ultimately there's forces and there's forces in the world that are symbolic in nature and they're kind of inhuman there's a kind of switch where things where they initially had a humanity to them and they've become these institutions they become these sort of power formations which we know rationally but you know there are material you know what i wrote is a little different than what we're talking about which is there are these kind of material apparatuses like abstract machines which which force ideas on you yeah Yeah, they like abstract machines concepts on you so it's not just like we we deal with concepts, but we actually there's actually these kind of great movements that's involved more man hours than we could produce in our lifetime, more people than we could produce, just to have these simple concepts beaten, beaten, slap you across the face, and you wonder why you feel like you know you can't really get a hold of society or you can't really get a hold of politics, right? And it's because there's all these kinds of you know just flapping ideas <laughs> and they're all oh, yeah. and then the, the other problem is they're all mixed together they all come together mm. i love woke capital because you know people are like oh woke capital that's bullshit versions of the idea it's like not really it's capital and the idea it's like a very simple machine woke yeah. capital is a simple machine for the idea right so you talk about like anti-racism do you really think night you know nike you know, back in Kaepernick doesn't have an effect on the world. I mean, not this is not an excuse for them, but it's merely to show the, the efficiency of the simple machine of woke yeah. capital, right? Yeah. Or well, like, like throw LGBT ideology, right, as practiced by the European Union. These are simple machines which force things, but only insofar as they kind of go into the direction of these kinds of capital vectors. People on the left, especially the more Marxist left, I'll be talking to them and I'll be talking about like where I think people's opinions are at in the country or like, you know, what consumers are doing as an indication of something. And they're like, you know, I don't really want to, I don't care about people's opinions. I want to talk about something that's material. You don't think, <laughs> yeah, you don't think right. people's opinions have, they might yes. not be material themselves, but they have material ramifications. They are an active force out here, even if you can't reach out, touch it the way you might like to. It goes back to the question is, books. But don't we relate to the spook besides shooting the spook in terms of <laughs> don't like really because I mean, we, we're constantly forced to relate to the phantasm, to the abstraction mm-hmm. when we're like, well, these abstractions are inhuman things, power over the human. So let's get rid of them, which you can in, until you can't. Sterner is right. saying, like, no matter whether it's a, a spook or, or something that's quite obviously tangible, like a chair or something, like, you have to, once you're aware of it, you have a relationality to it. And why not have the relationality of taking it in as your property and, and making it your own? Because isn't that the supreme, but then, yes, the ultimate but relationship? It will bend you to its will. Then it bends you yes. to its will. You might just see, like power. Just like power, you have a, you get a job. You, you know, you, you can be a man of the idea. They'll pay you six figures, right? And you're like, oh, aren't I one with the phantasm? Aren't I one with the specter? No, because now you're stuck. Now you're. That's you know. This is like the classic. To be a Jungian for a second. Let's just go way off the map. To be a Jungian for a second. You know the classic. <laughs> 
archetype of the story of the of the man who wishes for something and then is trapped by the thing. Balzac has a what is it? Balzac has a play, The Skin of Sorrow, or it's The Skin of Chagrin is a better translation, but they translate it The Skin of Sorrow, which is just that. You wish things, he wishes power, fame, and of course it like takes the toll, right? There's plenty of examples in mm-hmm. literature about that. That's the problem. So you, you try to line up with the, sp- the phantasm, but it's never so simple, right? You're always kind of molecularized and it kind of claims you a little bit. It'll always claim you. Mm-hmm. It's a problem of how to make, because yeah, the, the ratio of being a, a spook is a, uh, it's, a, yeah, it's, a it's a ratio of the abstraction. It, it's hard to think about it and to use them in any way, you know, post post-turn away without thinking that you're doing the you know, Zizekian ideology thing of, yes, I don't, I don't actually believe in it, but I'm just taking part of it. It's, just, it's my property, you know, and, and you're really sort of failing to convince yourself. I, as is, I guess it's where the insurrectionary part comes in, because you can't really enjoy them as your property as freely, more or less until the entire world has been destroyed. Yeah. <laughs> because <laughs> the thing about sort of reconciling this with the Hegelian notion, especially as you get people like uh, Zizek and um, McGowan talking about it, is the idea that identity only doesn't really exist. It's only ever self-differentiation. Its existence is a repeated failure to be itself in its own ab- in its own abstract way of wanting to be itself. You know. But if identity doesn't exist, what is a non-existent? What is what is this void? Once again, what is this non-existent identity? It's, it's, yeah, it's, create, it's, a, it's a creative nothing. Creative nothing. Yeah, I was going to say it's a nothing like, that tries to be itself oh, no. and keeps failing to be itself. Well, it's like now, a, now it's the radical like, opposite. The identity <laughs> is the creative nothing, which 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 was used to escape it. Now, yeah, like now a, we have the inhuman creative nothing. <laughs> it's like an iterating lack. It's like mm. a space where you expect there. There's all you always expect there to be a stair there, and you take a step, and there's never a stair there, and it just keeps coming in in new and unpredictable forms i suppose this is where egoist accelerationism comes into play (laughs) oh no (laughs) (laughs) i'm just kidding i don't have anything to back that up but i'm I'm actually i'm actually an administrator i'm being provided on on an ego acceleration page (laughs) on the on the on the on the cursed on the zucker book the cursed zucker book yeah, I'm in. But it's more of a meme groups. than any. It's more of a meme than like the black cat guy. Yeah, well, I'm in like a, a bunch of groups where people are supposed to be discussing like Stirner and, and Guy Debord and the Situationists and stuff, and it's all it's all accelerationist memes. Accelerationist memes have taken over the entire weird post left and like critical internet space. Yeah. It's just how very accelerationist. It is. It's, what, it's, 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 just, it's just black metal. It's Nick, you know, Nick Land is just Varg Vickern. Nick <laughs> Land is Varg. <laughs> dead, is, dead is Mark Fisher and also Nick Land's previous brain, which hopefully he joins uh, relatively soon. Um, but sadly, China have got the whole COVID thing pretty sorted. Right, there we go. Um, but Egoist Accelerationism, that'd be quite a cool one. Because I think there, is, there are elements of accelerationism, I guess... In the sense of inheriting the world after destroying it. I mean, that is kind of the project here, isn't it? To destroy yeah. the structures, to prevent old yeah. family from realizing itself in, right. in individual interaction. But really, every rev- every interaction starts with individuals. You don't wait, like the the Marxists do, for the collective subject to miraculously spring out of material conditions, and then you can just put a leash on it and drag it into power. Well, no, it has to be insurrection from the first person. Yeah, don't you think that Sterner would be like, 
incredibly opposed to accelerationism because he'd be like, oh, this whole system of machinic capital accelerating and no longer needing the pieces that it was once founded upon. And like, it, it's all, accelerationism is also depersonalizing and, mm. and alienating in a way that I think Stirner would constantly be asking like, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? And there's no, there's mm. no clear answer to that. It goes back to the question of mm. the thing which is outside you in terms of what is the real force of what is outside in society and in economics and to what extent you have to reckon with it or to what extent does it spook you and then there's this kind of quantum state where it's like if you give it credence it will take you but if you don't give it credence it won't there's this mm -hmm. kind of quantum spook the quantum specter of like participation <laughs> schrodinger's phantasm absolutely there you go yeah. I mean, I mentioned that piece by The Right to be Greedy, which I thought was, mm. I was had jokingly many times discussed writing like the egoistic accelerationist manifesto, but I thought that when I read that, I was like, oh, holy shit, it's already, it's already been done pretty well. They didn't get into cybernetics or anything like technology at all, but far as I think in a certain sense, the idea being that people aren't greedy enough and there has to be this sort of dialectical movement of this kind of liberal greed dying out and the more egoist mm. egoistic greed taking over so that people like Bezos and again that's where my example of Jeff Bezos comes into play he's not greedy enough he's sort of has this selflessness to the fixed idea of capital well the the problem with all these guys and why they're all shit and why we're great um <laughs> yes, <laughs> obviously thank you for acknowledging that obviously right eventually they're trying to like double down on the cybernetic existence of the zero one and the control of the real the real the yeah. zero one and right. eventually the great eventually zero. the zizek point which is so pertinent which is to see a video game you to see the tree in a video game you can't like walk up to it like this like eventually you're gonna have to do this in order to see what people are talking about and be like kind of far further away from it, except maybe with PS5 or something, whatever. But eventually you're going to get into the dialectic forces of the world in terms of eventually it's not going to be a question of uh, zero to one cybernetics. I think, I don't, you know, that's, that's I think, the, the one fault of all the people that are hard anti-Hegelian, like Nick Land and the CCRU and talking about fragmentation and different different economic systems where you could avoid these substantive issues, but of course it doesn't take into account the spirit of the thing. I saw this guy talking about, a libertarian talking about, oh, we're all going to get a plot of land in Malta and we're going to create a 2,000 person startup city. Um, and it was really interesting. Like, this guy, this, I'm like, first of all, this is never going to happen. Then they started talking about Africa and they're like, well, do you want to live in Africa? And I was just like, but that's even like not even the most important part because that is, you know, because it would have been cheaper and more can Eventually, they missed their own dialectic kind of shit, which is determinant, right? Nobody's going to, you're not going to get 2,000 people to move to Malta and make a startup city for like $500 million unless the way that they're like, oh, what about a blue chip city? I'm like, Cooper, you might know about blue chip cities. You're in Texas. You don't know about blue chip? What about, what about fucking Plano, Texas? You heard of Plano, oh, yeah. Texas? Yeah, yeah. I lived yeah. like That's, right near there at one point. You live by Plano. That's already exists, right? Yeah. And what, the way that those get funded is not by like some like libertarian goofball. It's by like a multi-international billion dollar corporation avoiding right. taxes. That's, yeah. how, a, right. that's yeah. how a startup city exists. So if they were really cared about capitalism, they would actually see how it worked, which was you take a billion dollar corporation, you move it to a place. You don't raise the money. That's not how it yeah, fucking works. Exactly. So the delusions of cybernetics being like the only kind of approach is 
is not new. I think it's like a, it's the wish, the wish that if you just hack the system correctly, but then they avoid this actual system, the force of the system. Let me go ahead. I'll read this so that the listeners can see that I'm not just coming out with this Althusser uh, and Foucault stuff out of my ass. So I'm going to mm-hmm. read this from the text. So the independent existence of the state establishes my lack of independence. Its naturalness, its organism demands that my nature doesn't grow freely, but is cut to fit, but fit it so that it can develop naturally. It applies the shears of civilization to me. It gives me an education and culture suitable to it, not me, and teaches me, for example, to respect the law, to abstain from the violation of state property, i.e. private property to revere a divine and earthly sovereignty. In short, it teaches me to not be culpable, by which I mean to sacrifice my ownness to sacredness. Everything possible is sacred. For example, property, the lives of others, etc. This is the sort of civilization and culture the state is able to give me. It teaches me to be a useful fool, a useful member of society. And then he goes yeah, on. That was, to- that was a nice slip. That was like a nice slip there. You said a useful <laughs> fool. Instead of a useful tool, which is what's written. And then he builds on that a little bit further to say, efforts to mold all human beings into moral, rational, pious, human, etc. Essences, i.e. training, have been in vogue from time immemorial. They are shipwrecked on the indomitable sense of self, on own nature, on egoism. Yeah, I mean, you can definitely see the through line from Althusser here, right? This is basically just talking about like the very mode that captures us into the reproduction of maybe not he's not talking about the reproduction of capital explicitly here but maybe more like the reproduction of the social relations that perpetuate capital and and the way we kind of take what Sterner might call police care of one another seems right. to be yeah. infectious like the more police care you are taken of the more you take of other people yeah i, I think you can sort of bring this in sort of an alphasarian way of thinking um not bring this read it as when you think of uh, in on reproduction of capitalism, ideologies and uh, ideological state apparatus is the example he gives towards the end of the book in, in Christianity, where Christianity is um, presents a structure in which there is a there is a god, there is a substantial being that gives the subject calls the subject to it and gives it a kind of substance, and the way it imagines its relation to the substance and substantializes it allows uh, actually motivates its its reasoning and its, its moving through the world. So. This is what happens when Scherner mentions that people are molded. They are put into this form which puts them in a relation to a substance, be it the human, be it God, be it rational Lord and rational state. And this is what gives them their substance. Their substance is uh, in another. It's, it's not equally a subject. And they are shipwrecked on, indom- on so they are shipwrecked on the indomitable sense of self, on own nature, on egoism. These things collapse as soon as there becomes a point of, of self-assertion where this this highly negative being actually realizes that there's no substantiality to be, to be found there. It's it's an imagined yeah. relation uh, shaped within this this mold of sociality, which is shaped by power. So it's you become a useful member of society, but a useful useful for who? No one. Literally, the, the abstraction, the substance, the father. So it's in a, in a way, egoism is quite anti-substantial. It it, it tries to de-alienate. Um, the otherness of the state by making it your own because it's fundamentally just as it doesn't have any higher substance higher being higher um, abstract divinity to it if anything it's just as fucked as you are and doesn't just doesn't know it i like the quote that you when we were kind of dming you said the reproduction of society requires a scoop to make people go which i think is yeah officer says it, people go 
yeah. if people and it's, I'm I'm doing a pun here based on two translations of two different books in two different languages. But towards the end of it, Sterner talks about the power of the relationship of, of the spook in calling, in your being called, in your calling. And now says something similar that how is one subjectified in ideology? One is called into it. It's you know he says so it's someone saying oh hey you, and you immediately if you respond to it you're in you're in this act, you're in the subjective uh, mode of being. You're caught in the dream of the other. You're fucked. Exactly. And this is kind of what's happening here. And of course, Ralph is, uh, as much as it's for Sterner, we're born into these structures equally. It's a bit, for, for Sterner, it's kind of just a, a indoctrinated into childhood, but for Alf, there it's a bit deeper than that because you are already, people speculate on your name, your gender, um, what you're going to be before you're even born. You're already subjectivated, subjected, called into being as an expectation before you actually ever materially exist. So these characters, in a way, act primary, at least in, in the situation of being present in them. Sometimes they can even act primary material. That's interesting. So it's like Sterner's conception, to put it in Althusserian terms, is like that the spooks of the world that we live in are constantly hailing or interpellating us and forcing us into a system of relationality. You ought to do this. You know, why? Because it's, it's the right thing to do. Well, what's... That's right. right. Well, it's a human thing to do. It's the godly thing to do. It's the rational thing to do. If you're listening to a writer Galen talking about the objective spirit, in which case Hegel just sort of spins, starts spinning, spinning in his grave, and you know, does a few cool flips or something. Does this discourse about Socrates have any purchase in terms of explicating this idea? Yeah, I guess because um, Socrates is he, he imagines that oh I've, I've been made by the state so I, have to, I'm, I'm, I just have to go die for it and we're just like well no actually you're kind of any one point yourself presupposing you're positioning yourself as yourself through an act of like affirming it as, as yourself the state hasn't actually the state if anything is only taken from the creative power of individuals it presupposes them as its yeah. source of um, the feedback loop of the state in any sort of cybernetic sense isn't actually a feedback loop if, if any, it's, it's got this hidden element that it's always exchange, extracting from yeah, so you can be like Nick Land and be a fucking idiot and say that, you know, everything is capital because everything's a fucking self-reproducing mushroom, like you said on some podcast one time. But really, there's a hidden thing that this capsule is actually extracting from. No matter how much H.P. Lovecraft to rip off you can write, it's not really going to change. Yeah, I, I felt like a, maybe that Sterner was kind of expressing a profound disappointment with Socrates mm. here. Oh, yeah. And that this was this guy who was able to go to people with presupposed ideas with these fixed notions and shatter them with simple questions and some, you know, reasoning and, and externalities to, to their already internal logic. And then at the end for him to just accept that the, that the state and, and the people have this power over him to kill him yeah. for impiety or whatever is such a betrayal, I think, to Sterner's mind of, of everything mm. that the, the previous, you know, Socratic lineage or, you know, genealogy of thought that he developed had, had stood for. Is it just me or is this a real, I, I don't know why I just realized this. Is like Socrates not the Jesus story? Isn't that like the Jesus story? Christianity? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, yeah. 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 <laughs> That's a good call out. But Christ didn't give a shit about Rome. Christ wasn't just, you know, being like, That's well, true. you know, I've always grown up under Roman rule, so do you know what? Then again, Socrates had no way near as much power, so he had to cope in much more of a well, cope point. I mean, to my mind, it's just Socrates was how old at that point? Like, he was an old man. He probably just didn't have any fight left in him. He's like, run away? To where? Well, also, where am I yeah, going to exa- go? Well, yeah, also Athens was the the only place where life really was, where civilization was in his mm-hmm. kind of mind. So to be banished was to be like, you're banished from Athens. You're like, might as well 
just that he did. I think was it, which is not true. It was like he could have done stuff elsewhere. But yeah, in terms of that, that's a really good point. The Athenians as enemies, he initially sees them as kind of, he doesn't say that they're dumb. He says like, you're very wise, of course. He sees them as this kind of wise, (laughs) which begs a lot of questions. Then he sees, he sees them as, you know, his judge and something, he kind of cares for them in some way. So then he accepts their judgment to destroy them after he's sort of shown them to be foolish. It's like, why, do the, why does the fool get the ultimate power of ju- judgeship? That's a great question. Yeah. I mean, how much does that apply to, I guess, our own society too, right? Well, I mean, that's why I've, I think I'm really attracted to thinkers like Sterner is because they provide that kind of extra step outside of your normal systems of reasoning that can mm-hmm. get you to those kind of interesting Socratic insights that maybe avoid some kind of sophomoric closing off of reasoning beyond a certain point. I guess Turner is kind of talking about like this is a magnificent pause. That's not really like matters. Yes, Socrates' story is almost a bit like um, some people what stuff like the West Wing is for liberals today. Because it's just this love yeah. of the institution. Yeah, it's like a weird. It, everything is like coded in a in an institutional venerance for some reason. No matter how subversive it seems to be, episode to episode. Like I've been watching Bones recently, right? That's just like neoliberalism, the show. <laughs> It's like everything I hate about West Wing translated into a scientific crime procedural, which is neither scientific nor true to the way that the criminal justice system actually works, but it's entertaining, so I keep watching it. Oh my um, god. I, I, I haven't been watching Bones, but I've been listening to people talking about watching Bones. I listen to this podcast called <laughs> the Boney Island Whitefish. And um, it's basically just oh, really? Riley from Trash Future and um, uh, Andrew from Buena Vista just watching an episode of Bones and then telling me how bad it is. I'm like, oh, damn, that sounds horrible. Good thing I'm not watching that. Um, yeah, it's terrible. Don't watch it. It's an enjoyable hour. It's funny how bad it is. <laughs> I mean, we have, we have, a, we have a, a lip-brained um, intelligence series in the UK actually called Spooks. So I might watch that for a while. But it's, really? it's just as lip-brained as, as you expect. Like Sterner, you mean? Like, or Spooks? Is... I mean, it's, it's Spooks. Spectres. There's a hidden uh, speculative sense in this because the people that are all MI6 agents and therefore they are spooked as fuck. Oh, so they're talking <laughs> to people that are like oh, they're to the British government. So yeah. they're that they are themselves spooks. Yeah, like how we how like a old timey American leftist would call the CIA spooks. So let's say for a moment, Uh-oh. if you will, what's what's the Ben Shapiro meme? What's the Ben Shapiro meme? So let's say for a moment that this is. The AOC's feet is this, and I'm let's <laughs> say okay. So let's say for a moment <laughs> that the world is Athens, and we we the wise egoists are like Socrates. Then then how do, what do we what is our relation to this? You know, once again, epic matrix third pill wise pre-Socratic wise man me- mentality. But I think there's something to it in terms of there's this gigantic kind of specter of kind of neoliberal ideology and kind of general idea of a power of the kind of abstraction of the abstract kind of capital serving mm. activist, you could say activist slash capitalist mentality. What is our relation to that as a Socrates, assuming that we're, we're in Athens, say for a moment, we're in Athens, but the world is Athens and our union of egoists is Socrates. I mean, I don't know. I feel like I should have an answer for that. If I pose the question, <laughs> like, I'm such a dick. He says be Diogenes in the text. Yeah. Wait, hold on, let me, let, me find, let me find the quote. Um, I'm about to control F that shit. 
it's two, four, five. So yeah, if the state is considered the guardian of everything human, then we can have nothing human without taking part in it. But what does this say against the egoist? Nothing at all, because the egoist himself is the guardian of humanity for himself. It says only these words to the state, get out of my son. So it's um, the guardian of humanity for himself in a sense he guards what is seen as the most sacred for himself because he takes claim over it and his humanity is only one characteristic and doesn't have to have any obligation to him because it's not an idea above him, but it's simply a way of, a way of enjoyment. Because I mean, the humanity of, of Diogenes is really to, is the, the humanity of having it purely as something to, um, to spit upon, to transgress. To, it's something that is only ever there as a transgressive measure because in transgressing it, there's a sort of dissolution of it as, as a fixed position and therefore an affirmation of the fundamental indeterminacy of the subject and of, of the living being. I, I, I think mm. this transgression stuff is pretty interesting because a transgression is always against the sacred. And the sacred is always, only ever consi- uh, considered as something uh, cut off, something, based something I, I am not allowed to have. But really, I think there's a sense of it as transgression has its own sort of notion of, this, of like a positive egoist sacredness to it because it's, there's something intensely self-affirming in sort of getting out of yourself because when you do something when you do an egoistic affirming action you sort of get out of yourself as any fixed position there's something ecstatic about it and there's a kind of like Dionysian element to that I think in some ways how Bataille used to talk about transgression where you sort of don't try to recuperate yourself in these symbolic structures of exchange where the human is simply exchanging the self as an abstraction through what you're in the course, through what you're doing. But instead, you're just purely doing this act of, of expenditure of your own stuff. You're dissolving it. You're losing it. You're not trying to preserve the life of your humanity, but you're enjoying the life of your humanity. There's a kind of sacred expenditure in here. I think maybe I think there's actually a possibility, I guess, if you do it as a bit of a tie to like a sacred acephalic sterner. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. And now we're getting in the zone. Jumashu Kawa and sort of the front lectures they used to have um, for the for the Asafal Society, the, the College of Sociology, said in a paper called The Winter Wind that um, we want to do the opposite of Stern and make everything sacred. But really, given that they do, they believe you do this through a constant transgression of, of fixity and of symbolic logic of exchange and utility of usefulness in society, then really this sort of sacredness is exactly what Stern is going for. It's the sacredness of, of the unique, of that moment of self-dissolution of expending yourself. It could be shitting, yes, but, you know. Reminds me a lot of libidinal economy. Sterner is a very hang-on, tight and spit on me kind of guy. Yeah, right, exactly. That's what I was <laughs> thinking, too. I like this, too, because this next quote, I think, really drives home, I think, the Foucault connection a little bit more directly. It's very like a prison society or prison collective, those who enjoy the same prison. Here we get into a third factor, even richer than the merely local one. The room was. Prison no longer just means a space, but a space with express reference to its residence. It is indeed only a prison because it is intended for prisoners, without whom it would be a mere building. What gives a common stamp to the collectivity in it? Obviously, the prison, since they are prisoners only by means of the prison. So what determines the way of life of prison society? The prison. What determines their intercourse? Perhaps also the prison. Of course, they can also only carry on intercourse as prisoners, i.e. only as far as prison laws allow it. But they that themselves hold intercourse, I with you, this the prison cannot bring about. On the contrary, it must take care to prevent such egoistic, purely personal intercourse. And only as such is it actual intercourse between you and I. Yeah, I love the Diogenes con- consciousness idea. I feel like 
I feel like running with that throughout the rest of it in terms of, well, what does it mean? It's like Diogenes consciousness towards it and irreverence towards it. Yeah, I mean, I think he's really saying like diogenic thing here as well, right? Which is only in so far as I can relate to you outside of the constraints of all of the systems that have pushed us together. Only in so far as that do we have any legitimate relationality between us at all. That's not just entirely twisted and perverted by some arbitrary form of mediation, some form of social control. I think that's interesting because it, it definitely does feel like Foucault, 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 doesn't it? Like, however the fuck you say his name. I've never read him, but it feels like him, doesn't it? You weren't forced to read Foucault at some point? I feel like that's like the... In terms no, of I wasn't. One, oh, interesting. I feel like that was, that's the one I never, that's the thing that gets shoved. John's completely autodidactic. I have never been never had Foucault. somebody tell me what to read. Obviously, there's a huge, obviously Foucault-shaped hole in my knowledge, but I just keep learning. It's probably good at this point. It's probably better at this point that you keep it because it makes you unique. If you'd never read Foucault, (laughs) it's like not watching Star Wars. You're like, it's like you've never seen Star Wars. There are people like that, you know? I started a podcast and everybody was like, oh, you guys you guys must listen to so much Chapo. And I'm like, I've never listened to Chapo. But then we had like someone from Chapo on the show and I was like, well, shit, I'm in too deep now. I can't ever listen to Chapo <laughs> at this point. <laughs> exactly. The absence, the power, power of absence emerges once again. That's absolutely right. But yeah, back to the, I guess to the prisoner's point, the reason why they can't hold intercourse together You can't really do a free mutual association because the space you're doing it in is delineated by the powers that keep you unfree. It's very sort of like a a, a wobbly thing to this, you know, like an injury to one is an injury to all kind of thing. Because it's very hard to have your own freedom in any sense when there's unfreedom still about. It's where the interaction is is constant, really. Free association has to sort of constantly be beating back all these opposing forces. It's why it's so incredibly destructive, this, this account. Yeah, it, it's almost a, a flip of the wobbly slogan, isn't it? It's, it's saying the more obvious thing, which is that an injury to all is an injury to me. Mm. People have this capacity to just think, oh, this is a grand historical thing. Oh, this is just something that happens in politics. And then it feels like it's not imminent. It feels like you don't have a relationship to it, even though you do, even though it's quite obviously still exercising force on your life. So yeah, maybe, maybe it's, uh, maybe it's the, the more obvious flip of the, the classic Wobbly slogan. Yeah, it's kind of intersectional as well in terms of if you, if you, in the, you know, if you, if you sort of take away this notion of identity as purely being like in a fixed position as your things, you know, gender, sexuality, et cetera, you sort of, if you, if you, if you sort of realize the potentialities of becoming in that sort of Deleuzean sense, then really you need to sort of try to emancipate all, every, like all the other intersections because you're not fully confined to any of them either. You're spreading across them. So you're as, you're as free as, the, the most unfree intersections. Which, which I think a lot of the of the right, like roots of the right sort of style, reads of Shana miss miss uh, quite a bit. It's omni emancipatory. I'll read this next one because this I think goes a bit further into this prison discussion. It's very like a prison society or a prison collective. Here we enter a third factor, even richer than the merely local one. The room was prison, no longer just a means of space but a space with express reference to its residents. It is only a prison because it is intended for prisoners, without whom it would be a mere building. What gives common stamp to the collectivity in it? Obviously the prison, since they are prisoners only by means of the prison. So what determines the way of life of prison society? The prison. 
what determines their intercourse, perhaps also the prison. Of course, they can only carry on intercourse as prisoners, i.e. only as far as prison law allows it, but that they themselves hold intercourse, I with you, this the prison cannot bring about. On the contrary, it must take care to prevent such egoistic, purely personal intercourse, and only as such is it actual intercourse between you and I, that we collectively perform a task, operate a machine, set something in motion, the prison will provide well for this, but that I forget it, that I am a prisoner, and enter into intercourse with you, who equally disregard it. That puts the prison at risk, and not only cannot be brought about by it, but furthermore, must not be permitted. For this reason, the saintly and morally-minded French chamber decides to introduce solitary confinement, and other saints will do the same in order to cut off demoralizing intercourse. Imprisonment is the established and sacred condition against which no attempt to injure it is allowed. The slightest challenge of this sort is punishable, like any rebellion against a sacred thing by which the human being is supposed to be inhibited and imprisoned. This has echoes of his quote about, like, all laborers have to do is put down their tools of labor and acknowledge the products of it as their own, and, they would, and labor would be free and the state would be lost. It's kind of the, in knowing that these sacred ideas, these fixed ideas or spooks are set up to control us in this way, it's not by like an active rebellion against them, but almost more like a non-acknowledgement that we are actually able to transgress them. Like the idea that two people in prison would forget that they are prisoners in the, in, in the moment of their intercourse, in the moment of their social connection with one another, and that that would have the most you know, incredible power against the prison. I think that's really amazing. And I think it I think a lot of people have this idea that like in order to oppose something, you need to situate yourself diametrically opposite to it in every way. And it's like you're still being controlled by it when you do that. You're just behaving in a, in a negative way whenever it moves positively or whatever. But instead to just not acknowledge it and to, to truly rob it of its power is to just cut the legs off of it as being something to be taken seriously at all. Sort of like yeah. the Shawshank Redemption almost, like in terms of themes. And what, yeah, I, f- I feel like we're getting into the realm of the quantum, the quantum specter here, in terms of the quantum. <laughs> in terms Do of tell like, there's there's like a question to what extent, you know, the the absence of acknowledgement is a specific positionality within the prison, which is still determined by the prison. Right. And, and I'm not sure the answer is the the opposite of what you're saying either. I'm not sure it's simply like, oh. Uh, we're we're two prisoners not acknowledging that we're prisoners, ergo we've escaped the apparatus to some extent. Because it might that might be true too. Uh, but yeah, I think that's that there's sort of a question yeah. that that asks. To what to what what role is the prison still real force? Right. The idea of the quantum spectre actually is really I think yeah, you actually have a real point in bringing that back up because what the, the spectre needs is it needs it needs you. It's fun. It's as Hujek says, you know, yeah. using his example of reality is fundamentally ontologically incomplete. And so, so is the spectre. So is the symbolic order. It kind of it's it actually needs people to sort of participate in it. It calls them to participate yeah. in it. It's a real the call that Sterner is um, going against is, is the call for realization. And I think because none of this ever fully realized in the subject itself, there's like an element of how. What's so like great about Stern here is how imminent the possibilities of, sort of building union of ego is. It's basically like a communization theory, like to an invisible committee kind of thing happening in, in in these pages, I think. And, it, and it's, it's it's far better. I mean, it's 
rather than these sort of always deferred possibilities of, of some strains of Marxism, you know, where we have to say, rather than delaying it in the infinite process in which, okay, guys, we have, we have the red team on Control of the Dragon now. Now, um, <laughs> don't mind about those camps. Jesus Christ, oh, sorry, Xi Jinping will save us later. Um, whereas here is like Shen is doing full communization shit, like fuck, like, fuck you, <laughs> we're going to do it now. We're going to sort of try free association and we're going to do it in this most like, creatively destructive form. It's There's this huge theme in Marxist thought, which is the problem that egoism has aligning with capitalism in terms of the subjectivity of one. So the Marxist thought will say like, oh, one of the problems with capitalism is it you can only think of yourself in the unit of one but there's something besides that there's something more than just the capitalistic individual with regards to uh the egoist thought that that we're trying to kind of parse out in terms of there's an accounting of ideology and apparatuses and force which it reckons with the one with the the individual person which you said we're not it's a personality right personality or the the process of the whatever that person is with these apparatus which is a, a kind of diogenes position then you could say aristotle like hanging out with alexander and uh, go let's go kill everything east of greece because <laughs> that'd be epic because greek is just greece is so awesome <laughs> and of course then alexander comes back and asks diogenes Ah, uh, yes, me and Aristotle, we did all this. What do you want? You're another, you're like this guy. You're like this guy. Like, uh, you're like one of these, you, you told Plato, you threw a chicken in front of Plato. That's fucking epic. That's cool. Uh, what do you want? And he goes, get the, and goes, get the fuck out. He's a unit of one, right? Yeah. You could say Alexander is a unit of one with the Nicomachean ethics, Aristotelian ethic, right. becoming a great man or whatever with the ideals guiding him and the golden mean, but they're both units of one, the units of the individual, but they're very antithetical positions. I hear from Marxists a lot that the big problem with organizing in the United States, particularly, is individualism, right? There's too, there's too much individualism. Everybody wants, everybody wants everything to serve themselves. I really think that that's a failing. I really think that that's a lack of imagination and an unwillingness to address the fact that capital has tried to capture individualism and present a perverted myopic version of it to us and that that's very popular it's not it's like the artificial banana flavor of ideology capitalist individualism it's it's so far from the real deal as to almost really not be recognizable like i said earlier Engels even like wrote to marx when after having read the unique in his property saying pointing out this appeal to ego the egoist individuality as a potential like yeah i mean revolution the question of, of revolutionary condition comes down to this a lot. People will say, like, how do we teach people not to act only in a way that gets them personal benefit? And I'm like, that's exactly the wrong question yeah, to ask. Exactly. You should be asking, how do we show people that a revolution is yes, in their personal exactly. interest? It will give them benefit. And it's a tricky question because it forces you to reformulate the way that you think about revolutionary strategy from the entire ground mm. up, which is hard to do when people don't want to do it. So I think that's the main bit is just laziness and lack of imagination. How hard is it to sell the notion of autonomy? I can't, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I know it should be harder than you think, thing, but <laughs> well, it's hard to sell Diogenes the, to the main to the main to. It's hard to sell Diogenes to Aristotle, you know. So that's yeah. right, and that's the issue. And it's and it's easy to sell Aristotle to a CEO. 
<laughs> We're really making Aristotle out to be the bad guy here. Like you'd think he's Aristotle not a bad, would be he's like not a bad guy. He's not a bad guy. He's not a bad guy. dealership owner from Miami just, Dade. <laughs> he's, look, he, he's like ontologically a foundation of philosophy. So it's, you know, yeah. I'm not saying he's a bad guy, but in terms of there's an idea of individual ethics that Aristotle has, it's just very counter. Yes. And like Diogenes. And then the idea of Diogenes, well, Diogenes is just a troll, but actually in terms of when one is trying to not get killed by Athens, Diogenes seemed to have a lot better luck than Socrates, you, even though- Interestingly enough, more, right? <laughs> even, though, even though he was, you know, specifically saying, fuck you, Athens. That's worth noting, I think. That is- well, you, that's you could say fuck you, Athens. It was <laughs> Sorry, yeah, Sinope. So what, what we're saying <laughs> is that- Okay, this is embarrassing. Where is Sinope? <laughs> Where's Sinope? I, it's in Greece. I don't know. I think it's probably, it's, it's probably, it's probably part of, it's the part of Turkey that was Hellenic. Yeah, wasn't it? I thought it was in Damascus. Oh, it's in Turkey. Oh, know. fuck. Well, fuck me. <laughs> Shows what the fuck I know. Athens is more like the, the classical vibe. Yeah. Well, what what we're trying to say is that uh, the combination of Diogenes and Stirner is how you finally get out of being the Aristotelian Kantian political subject that capitalism wants you to stay. Which is like a Hegelian or Fichtean, perhaps. Yeah, Fichtean. Everything's coming back to Fichte more recently. Everybody thinks Hegelian dialectics are the Fichtean yeah, synthetic right. method. So why not just switch to the Fichtean Lean into synthetic it method? All the way. It's better anyway. Yeah. And switch to metric while we're at it. Would be nice. <laughs> the synthetic method is short. It's not entirely untrue in terms of there's, there needs to be a kind of reckoning between the thesis and, the, and its obstacle, right? The thesis and its obstacle. And then you're getting something which kind of looks like a synthesis, but is like not just you know, oh, this one a little and this one a little. It's, right. The process is important. You know? Yeah, people think synthesis means a little from column A, a little from column B, and that's not, it's not quite what it means. <laughs> it's the, at the end, it kind of looks like that's what ha- that is what's happened, kind of, but it's just totally, it misses the point. It's not like, oh, this is a little right, this is a little right, ergo we, ergo we get a synthesis. It's like, this is what we want. This is the obstacle. This is how we overcome it. Right. This is how this, I, this idea overcomes this obstacle. Incentives is all the way down, and it's, it's what sort of constituents uh, constitutes both, I guess. Yeah, like the Diogenes, in terms of Diogenes, is the sort of you could say we have we first of all we have a thesis of the individual, which then dialectically progresses to Diogenes's relation, which then goes back to civilization, which we go through in terms of if you were, the Sterner consciousness will be something like against you'll have to be you can't you can't be fully just enamored with the specters of civilization and be a be a mm. sternarian egoist really or be an egoist i would say even if you right. reckon with the specters yeah no being an egoist at least not an unwitting one involves wearing the they live shades all the time <laughs> you shower with them on yeah. you sleep with them on it's very epic and matrix like that's, <laughs> just, that's right. my, my 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 urge is always to just bring it back to the most banal Look, it's just like the Matrix, except Slavoj Zizek's handing you the third pill. And we're all very wise. That's it. <laughs> just like, <laughs> you like, pill? Is it blue pill? Or is it a hot dog I bought? <laughs> it's a very good hot dog. Uh, Welcome to the desert of the real, right? Here's a hot dog. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I should read this more on this section of the text, at least this very famous quote in terms of, especially in terms of insurrection. The revolution is aimed at new arrangements while the insurrection leads us to no longer let ourselves be arranged 
but rather to arrange ourselves and sets no radiant hopes on institutions. It is not a fight against the established, since if it prosper, prospers, rather, the established will collapse of itself. It is only working of my way out of the established. If I leave the established, it is dead and falls into decay. Since now my aim is not to overthrow or the overthrow of the established order, but to rise above it. So this is like the egoist accelerationist shit right here. This is such a rich fucking section. It's amazing, isn't it? It anticipates all the stuff that Baudrillard would say in books like The Agony of Power, that power itself needs to abolish. But it's, it's also anticipating um, Agamben and the communizers' account of what they call destituent power. Because what happens here is that it's not simply that they're doing a revolution where they're going to take over the established order, but rather they're going to leave it destitute. They're going to fight. They're looking for an exit to find a way out. And they're sort of trying to build, they're just trying to sort of do um, their own associations, their own autonomous action, stealing from the state, of course, but also to extent sort of do a better job at organizing their affairs and resisting recuperation than they are. And in that sense, you don't need to like try and make a, a count, try to you know, enter into the structures of constituent power where this constitution, you, know, you literally, you try to give yourself a fixed constitution and you enter into the establishment. Rather, you simply act in a way that leaves the state completely destitute of, it, of its power, of its source, of, its, of the individuality it needs to affirm itself. And by that point, it's just, you know, to push it over. <laughs> like, um, this is the paragraph that sort of makes you think, for me at least, that Ash Turner is a communizer. Yeah, it makes sense to me. He has this craving for immediacy, right? Like he doesn't want a political program that's just like a new, a new narrative of unfolding alienation and never actually right. reaching anything. He yeah. wants to be able to reach out and, and take what's his. Um, prefigurative politics. Yeah. Well, and almost not even prefigurative politics, just like figurative politics, right? Like Stirner doesn't want to set up something that will morph into the thing that he wants. He wants to set up the thing that he wants direct, which I think is really crazy because you just don't, you don't see that in a lot of political theorization. It's always process driven. And I, I think Stirner doesn't have, I don't think he has respect for institutional processes at all, which rips because I think I yeah, don't either. I don't either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a post-capitalist desire, I guess. Shit, we can plug we can plug Fisher into this. We can Hegelize Fisher and uh, I don't know, make make zero books his views on Stirner and then we like, fix them up a little bit. <laughs> you mentioned Baudrillard, and I think mm. where I see Baudrillard fitting into this is trying to battle capital on the plane of the real is sort of a losing as a sort of a lost cause. You sort of need to switch to I don't know another register to sort you of can't be wise you have to be anti-fool you know <laughs> yeah there, yes there you go yeah you can't just be the real thing once you're in kind of baudrillard bill you're just you just have to be anti this thing and that that does lead you to a, a sort of subjectivity which is where, more where you want to be i'll read this last quote i have in this kind of section of this foucault and althusser portion let us rather break with every hypocrisy of community and recognize that if we are equal as human beings, we are simply not equal because we are not human beings. We are equal only in thoughts, only when we are thought, not as we actually and bodily are. I am I, and you are I. But I am not this thought of I, but rather this I in which we are equal is only my thought. I am human, and you are human, but human is only a thought, a generality, neither you nor I are speakable. We are unutterable because only thoughts are speakable and exist in speaking. Some very fine Hegelian logic there. Yeah, I mean, also it's a, it's like an 
a way of addressing the intangibility of equality, right? And especially of promises of equality that come from any kind of political program, because it's never, it's never realized. Show me a political program in the history of the world that's realized you and me actually becoming equals in a, in a sense that we can each, for lack of a better word, like materially appreciate. It's not. We're, we're, only, we're only equals to each other in this, in this realm of fant that we use to relate to one another and have conversations. And yeah, it's, it's not like a, a traditional critique of equality as, oh no, some people are just naturally more powerful or you know, any of that sort of essentialist way of thinking about anti-equality. It's more like saying, dude, I'm not even equal to myself. Like, how am I <laughs> equal to you? Yeah, I think that's just it. I, I think that's just it. There's no, there's no equivalence, right? It's the, the creative nothing is not the same as the same creative nothing, in a sense. That really dinks you, dink. Yeah. <laughs> how how can we have equality? How can I be equal to you when I'm not equal to myself? A, a doesn't equal A. It's the greatest uh, breakup line of all time. <laughs> it is never equal day. It never will equal A. Okay, how many axioms do you have? I have to exit huh? and, accu- and accumulate capital. Thanks for yeah, hanging out. Yeah, thanks for jo- Absolutely joining us. Yeah. Very enlightening. I hope to be back with y'all. All right. Take care. Take it easy, my friend. I think here too, like this, this sort of unutterable portion of the quote reminds me a little bit of, and I think even just broadly speaking, maybe I should save this, but I'll just mention it now anyways, is uh, like this sort of a Quartarian notion of like the non-totalizable and intensive multiplicity. Hi, Taylor. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just come into the call. That just fits so well with, mm. I think, a lot of this sort of Sterner's eye or creative nothing, etc. It is definitely yeah. non-totalizable because it, it, can't, it can't be unified in, in the propositional sense because everything is already seeping out into, it, into its otherness. And it's, and it's definitely sort of an intensive. It's, it's intensity in the sort of sense of temperature, you know, because it's, you're not simply expending, expanding upon yourself but there's an intensity in which you for there's an intensity of force in which you force your, you sort of push yourself in, into being insert yourself in just simply just by being yourself it's it's too intense to put into this extensive sort of quantifiable notion i guess maybe you could take it in sort of the intensity of temperature so you know you've got german fahrenheit which is like a drive like yeah. drivenness far and the driving direction so it's almost like sort of the intensity of sort of the, the heat of the the nothingness of, of sterner yeah is what pushes it forward in in a certain itself it's it, nothingness is just too hot to not be <laughs> that's really interesting in the context of libidinal economy and leotard because he has this sort of libidinal band motif that's sort of like a topological version of the body where like the different intensities are, you know, like obviously the mouth, the ass, all of the intensive zones on sort of the quote unquote body without organs, right? But in this topological model where everything is flattened out into this sort of 2D plane. Is, is the unique body without organs? I, I, I think it is because in a sense, because the body without organs is this synthetic mode that allows in Guattari that simply allows the new connections in the, in, with desire to be made. It's, it's something that puts in the negative version of awe. It's this little excess of possibility. Yeah, right. Allows you to sort of reconfigure. I think the unique is a kind of body of our organs. I mean, Sherman's sort of talk about possibility a bit later on. And in terms of possibility and actuality, the possibility usually for Sterner is, is, is an imaginary thing, but there still must be, fundamentally ontologically, even if it's not quite utterable because it is a kind of death, there must be the possibility of deorganizing yourself in order to have this fundamental um, lack, lack of fixity. What I can't quite figure out is the 
is the unique or the eye or the egoist, are they within ideology? And like how to sort of, Sterner does sort of have this notion that there is a social construction of, of the eye and like pleasure and enjoyment and wealth and, and such. But I don't know how to square that with the machinic processes that Deleuze and Guattari sort of go like that direction. Well, I mean, there's, there's a kind of, um, I mean, there's Deleuze and Guattari would see Sterner as being, if they want to look, if they were doesn't disagree, Deleuze disagrees quite a bit because he thinks that in Nietzschean philosophy, he says that he shows that the nihilism of the eye of identity is the truth of the Hegelian dialectic, right. which I think is true, but not in the, the it's probably a bit more positive outcome behavior than that, I think, to those things. But I think they might uh, compare Sterner to like an extreme example of um, the third synthesis of the unconscious, which is one which unites all of these connections into one stable map of connections between desiring machines and this residual bit of energy left over and that the subject, that's the thing that goes, oh, that's me. And I think it's, they would think that really the subject is something produced here and Sterner is just a product, I think, doing the creating. But, but Sterner knows he's a product. He knows right. that he's being subjectivated, subjectivated in these forces of ideology, in these, in these symbolic orders all the time. It's not so much that the I is necessarily always a subject to Sterner, but it's also a non-subjective, non-subject mode of, of being for Sterner that is its own autonomy. There's something that's given autonomy yeah. here. It's, ta- it's a subject that taps into its better organs. Even, even as a subject, as soon as you turn around to look at the creative nothing that is you, now you're, you're no longer it because you're looking at it, right? There's like a weird mode of even as you try and assess yourself as that thing, you're drawing yourself out of it just to have that perspective. Subjectivity kind of, maybe, maybe like subjectivity is, is really the point of collapse of subjectivity in, in a Sterner kind of sense. It's, it's going back to that kind of quantum notion too. The fact that you have sort of a, a subjective identity that you sort of repelled into is really, it's, it's an act of force from the outside. It's the force of power that shapes you in a very material sense. You know, in a way, even on like the neurological level, sort of the neuroplasticity of, of the brain means that it's constantly developing and throughout life. So the, the, the culture and the biological seem to intersect a bit more. So in that sense, it's sort of a, an active sort of inscription in, into one's own very effective capacity itself. So the socius is inscriptive as, as the Lazarus said and it's subscribing things into your body that make you and it's, it's an active process of force and as such the insurrection is literally the bodily site in which you push back against that and sort of reaffirm that there's a capacity in you to always be different from yourself and this isn't this isn't sort of the end I wonder I'm not smart enough to illustrate this but I wonder what relevance this sort of at the last instance that Althusser discusses and even La Roelle as well is getting it. I even in my investigations into La Roelle to some degree see a little bit shades of Sterner and certain aspects of what La Roelle is getting into in, in philosophy and non philosophy. Well, La Roelle is trying to do the ultimate getting at the back of things, right? Because, like, isn't philosophy trying to get at the back of things? And then he's trying to get at back of philosophy without doing it in a metaphilosophical philosophy examining itself kind of way. Mm. I, at least in an, maybe in an emotional sense more than anything, I definitely feel a connection there to Sterner, who's trying to get outside of maybe more tangible systems of control than, than you know, something like philosophy, which is essentially a long series of interesting abstractions. 
maybe it's just that in my head, I make the connection between at the last instance and a certain form of like an eminence that I make the connection. The in the last instance thing is having a way to put your finger for a second down on something that you know is slippery and can't be pinned down. And yeah, I think that, that, (laughs) yeah, exactly. Like the eye. So yeah, I think that's, yeah, I think that's a really fair assessment. Being a sort of sense that where you sort of go, oh, that's me. The last instance where you go, oh, actually, after all this stuff, you, you sort of collapse all these differences into this one thing that all these differences are to be driven in service of. Right. And that forms what you're able to reference as yourself, a symbol or, or the, the phenomena of identity. Something interesting that Deleuze did say in reference to Hegel and the I and so forth was the way that I really doesn't refer back to anything outside of it but the I. Mm-hmm. So it has this certain, it's different than other pronouns or right that are sort of pointing towards you or he or she, right? Those are specific. But what is the I? I only refers back to itself. Right, which, yeah, like the other pronouns are, are like a ray going out from one point, right. addressing another point and establishing yeah. relationality. But I is just a hall of mirrors. It's just yeah. endless reflections of itself. Yeah, exactly. Which I think is sort of an interesting, and just to think of it in, in terms of just grammar or sentence structure too, the way that I functions is, is a totally different than you would normally, I think, assume as far as like even other nouns, pronouns, largely speaking. Well, it's profoundly declarative, right? Because it doesn't rely on anything outside of itself. He, she, you, they all require context. I yeah. is self-contextualizing, which is really interesting. It says something unutterable because it's as an indexical. It simply says, it simply situates, it, it's, it's, yeah, it's literally just a self-assertion of being in a position, a position that we can't really ever truly inscribe. Um, even if we wrote it, you know, if we wrote it down, DI would be completely indeterminate. Hey, Hegel does this really well in the phenomenology of spirit, the first section on sense certainty, which is just trying to receive all of this experience, just try to know it in all this rich empirical nature. And then, okay, oh. The mere act of receiving something for him is really just, oh, this thing here now, completely fucking useless. <laughs> and that's, it's unutterable. The, the immediate is unutterable, but Stern is actually going, well, yes, but you know, we know this immediate is unutterable, but that's why, it's so, that's why it's so good. That's why it's so useful. Mm-hmm. We don't need mediation because we realize that our immediacy is already always already mediated. We just need to find a way to self-mediate it rather than having these essences coming in and, you know, Schoener, he went to Hegel's lectures and if he read the logic of essence, but if he did, he would have noticed, well, essence just breaks down all the time anyway. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you really distilled it right there. That's the great lesson from Sterner is that you're going to be mediated. So you may as well be self-mediated. Yeah, right. You're already self-mediated. And what happens when you add a C to self-mediation? Self-medication. That's what I'm talking about right there. <laughs> Take ownership of yourself, yeah. That's but right. that's not all, though. That's the critique, too, of, of Marx is, you know, you, can, you can't just will your way to freedom through taking ownership of yourself. I don't know. You need, there has to be this social element. The union of egoists are required, or like there's something else is required to do insurrection even. Stenner's, um what is really underrated in this text is how incredibly, like, empathetic he comes up with. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I, I guess, should I read the quote out on fellow feeling? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so, I love human beings, not just a few individuals, but every one. But I love them with the awareness of egoism. I love them because love makes me happy. I love because love is natural to me. It pleases me. 
I know no commandment of love. I have fellow feeling with every feeling being, and their torment torments me. Their refreshment refreshes me too. I can kill, not torture them. So I really think this, this, it's a call for an imminent sort of communizer-style insurrection because really one's freedom is tied to everyone else's. I think people have gotten Stern are so incredibly wrong by an excuse to be an absolute fucking cock and just be a dick for everyone. Because actually, no, you can't have an obligation to me. Like, so human does a brilliant job at doing um, an ethics via Sterner and Foucault in that collection of Max Sterner. We talked about an, an ethics of non-domination because Stern isn't just trying to be dominated by desires all the time because desires are equally, um, they're equally yeah. spooks, spooks. There is actually a, a lack of restriction. So there is actually restriction in Stern. It's, it's, it's part of the point of why he, he values the education of these years so much. It's just he's trying to complete the, the complete system. So Stern says eat your fucking vegetables and stop being a dick on Twitter. So. <laughs> <laughs> the exact opposite of what everyone on Twitter yeah. thinks Scherner is saying. <laughs> yeah, right. What's funny, what I thought is fairly ironic is, and there's a little, and I mentioned this, I think, in the last episode that John and I did with Elliot about like this contrast to Sartre and his sort of existentialism of the, what essence, existence precedes essence, right? Do I have that backwards? I can't remember. But it's funny in that sense because not only the sort of overlap or like contrast between how Stirner and Sartre are going in terms of an ontological position, but just broadly speaking, you know, Stirner is often viewed in this way of this negative selfishness or egoism. But it's funny that Sartre, who is not, says that hell is other people. And Stirner gives us this lovely quote about how he loves others, which I think is kind of just funny on a on a different level, not a, not a super deep level, but just kind of ironic. Don't you get the impression that Sartre was tormented by contradiction? It didn't feel positive to him. Any, anything that felt like a dissonance was, would just drive him mad. That was like the, that, that has always felt to me to, to be like his impetus for writing. And then contrast that with his contemporary Camus, who was very inspired by Stirner, who practiced radical acceptance. You know, the the exact opposite of being perturbed by dissonance or, or contradiction in the world, rather just simply face it head on, knowing that there's no alternative or not caring if there is. Camus, Camus was pretty, pretty spooked, though, I'd say. Oh, sure. Uh, yeah. He, he was, because uh, his entire sort of argument is, for emphasis, is on the basis of you know, intellectual honesty. Oh, intellectual honesty. That's a great reason to um, be miserable <laughs> all the time. Thank you. Because <laughs> there's, no, there's no autonomy in, um, in Camus. It's, it's the identity of the rebel, but even for Stendhal, the rebellion is meant to end at some point. It's the rebellion is a means, not an end. Right. So otherwise, you just get caught in the, you get caught in the dialectic. Whereas if, if, you, if, you, if you know your dialectic, you real, you've realized that, sort of, that you're being constituted by it at the same time. You end up a bit like Robespierre, I guess, trying to constantly... You, do terror on every difference until there's, there's nothing left. Because he talks about absolute freedom being absurd, and absolute freedom is um, it's essentially terrorism. It's the idea that everything everything must be brought to heel, constantly guillotined to keep the, the generality of, of the revolutionary war intact. Do you think but, he was this like deep, deep and thoughtful, and like uh, managed to hold? such seemingly contradictory positions that always seem to indicate towards like a total 
abandonment of any kind of like responsibility or beholdenness to other people but in fact many times manifest themselves in like a, a deep appreciation for your relationships with others do you think that he managed to distill all that down into the lessons that he was teaching like the young women attending the girls school he taught at because I, I think about that a lot like what was Sterner like in his personal life what yeah. was it like to be a student in an elementary school where Sterner was teaching could, could you feel these lessons emanating <laughs> from him or did he save it up for Hipple's wine bar and drunken screeds at one in the morning. He must have saved it for the wine bar. I, I, I remember reading the, the, <laughs> the poet, the poem that um, Engels wrote about the younger aliens. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. He's you know, uh, Sterner drinking uh, beer, but soon he will be drinking blood. And it was like, I think that something like Rouge says down with uh, down with authority, and then Sterner says down with laws also. I, I, I think he was known for being such a mild mannered man and. Really, yeah, he needs, he needs to get a few pints in him to get the to get the uh, the Einziger sort of flowing out. Well, it reminds me of someone I know. I mean, that's the funny thing. Like, you get into these heated conversations on Twitter or whatever. People expect your internet egoists and your internet communists to be like the most crazy punk nomadic or, or like otherwise like anti, anti antithetical to anti modern culture kind of people. Kind of yeah. people. And it, it, most of us are just normal pizza eating, TV watching, <laughs> regular people. We put our pants on one leg at a time, usually in the morning, just like everybody else. Egoism is so, like, uncool. It's so cool, but it's also so uncool. Just, it's not, it's, it's insurrectionary. The insurrection's kind of, I guess it's kind of boring. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's a constant bit of work. It's not just, there's not much of an edge to it because it's, it's a gun, not a sword. I guess maybe that probably puts out the accelerationist angle because it's so imminent that we don't really need to accelerate. There's nothing's arriving from the future. He's actually he's very anti-future. Well, yeah, isn't it? There's a kinship between egoism and accelerationism in that they both have this message that says, like, whether you subscribe to our ideology or not, it's happening. The egoistic theory of action, we all use it, whether we acknowledge it or not. And like the acceleration Mm. of forces of capital, like whether we're enthused by that or like academically, you know, enticed, it's it's happening. It it exists. Mm which is kind of mm. kind of interesting. I, I think maybe that's ideologies that have that kind of bluntness to them mm-hmm. are picking up steam now in the face of a lot of different catastrophes, one right after the other. Take ownership of, of yourself while holding tightly to me and spitting on me. Would, would Sterner say that some of this is a sense of proletarian enjoyment of it? I guess it's like an eatable I I like enjoyment of it, yeah. Yeah, that's actually a good segue because I was going to say we could shift into the sort of psychoanalytic Freudian, Lacanian notes that are that are in the text and i think he does sort of make a statement that's analogous roughly or like in the same spirit as as leotard's famous uh, quote about the english workers they do enjoy it. i haven't seen the evidence yet to otherwise they do enjoy it <laughs> <laughs> at, least, at least him in particular just distinctively self-flagellating as, as, as english are <laughs> so i think it's interesting here that Sterner's getting into Oedipus a little bit. This quote that I'll read, the family presents itself as a community of the required sort at first. Parents, spouses, children, siblings present a whole or make up a family for whose further extension side relatives may also serve if drawn close. The family is only an actual community when the law of the family, family piety or family love is observed by its members. I mean, this is absolutely true. You can observe this even in just what gets people ostracized from their family. It's not usually violating any kind of law or external social code. It's when you violate the code the of, of the, the family. family. Yeah. 
like mm. a, some small transgression against the norms of the family is so much more offensive to the family than a grand transgression against right. something that they all accept yeah, but yeah. isn't directly related to the family relationship. If you killed someone, your parents would still love you. But if you like, I don't know, what, the, what other sort of transgression you would... Broke their rules, you know, brought someone over when they told you not to, yeah. got caught with something they told you right. not to have. Exactly. Yeah, okay, that's a good example. Nice. This, this is, I don't know if it's so much eatable, though, although it is familial, because, you know, right. when Tari talk about eatable, they, they mean familial. But it's, it's, it's the reference here, I guess... In terms of the classical education, he probably would have been giving out as well as if, if he was reading some Hegel, some stuff on this, it would be Antigone, you know, because there's, there's the, the conflict of Antigone is the conflict between familial piety and state piety, which are really two, two forms of the same relation of, of possession. And familial piety is like yeah. whether she buries her brother in familial piety to returning the family back to, the, back to the earth, doing familial duties, the house gods and all that, versus the gods of everyone's house, you know, the, the house of houses, the state. And I think the anti-familialism here is definitely like this, this um, rejection of familial piety is simply a microcosm of, of state. It's, it's another source of personality, the personality of the name and the personality of the, the legal title. State is inherently an abstraction, you know, it's especially, especially like in a post anarchic way, because, you know, um, what, what, what does the word, what does the word the public come from? It comes from res publica, public thing. It, just, it tells you in the fucking name, it's a pure abstraction. <laughs> what do you live in? I live in a public thing. At least in the monarchy, like the king is like there to show you that at least it's, it's just some guy who has everyone by the bollocks. But no, this is a public thing. Yeah. It moves on its own accord. It moves for the I, people. <laughs> I don't just live in the public. I live in the republic, the fantastic mm. sequel to the public. <laughs> <laughs> this quote struck me as particularly Lacanian in its sort of snarkiness. Because even the most relentless criticism, which undermines all currently accepted principles, still ultimately believes in the principle. And I think that perhaps harkens back as well to that notion earlier we we're discussing when it comes to dialectic between revolution and insurrection and sort of this refusal to be assembled or to be organized, right? It's yeah. like a reification of those. There's a, a dialectic in the phenology of spirit, which might help explain that a little bit. As they usually is, is, um, yeah, right. is in the culture section, um, there's a dialectic between two modes of, of being. So one of them is, is, is faith, the world of faith. The other one is pure insight. So pure insight is this negative force of criticism that shows, no, that you see, this is all vain, it's all fake, the world is fake, blah, blah, blah. And faith is the one that says, actually, the world is meaningful, the world is still just becoming meaningful, it's, it's being to come. But really, what even in criticizing the world of faith, it's fundamentally undermining the conditions that generate itself. It's, it's criticizing the world as vain, but all it's saying is that this is, this is as vain as I am, because I, am, <laughs> I have shown the vanity of all this, I've shown the vanity of my world, my culture, and henceforth for the contours of my own subjectivity. So there's a, a still the belief in the principle if you define everything by it's if you sort of attack everything in terms of its failure to be meaningful, but really sort of you you have tied yourself to this meaninglessness such that you define yourself by it and sort of rely upon it. It's um that's why atheists are so Christian for, for Stenner. Yeah. So you, you have betrayed the idea, and even if you get a bit of pleasure out of it, you're still defining yourself by, by this by this pleasure. Yeah, if, if people read Stenner better, we simply um wouldn't have had wouldn't have had to deal with uh, Richard Dawkins. So <sighs> Byington, you bastard, why couldn't you translate this better? What look what Marx has taken from us. Oh so this next quote is the one that I was that recalled um, the famous Leotard quote where uh, Sterner says, people have raised a tremendous uproar over the thousand-year wrong that the rich are committing against the poor, 
as if the rich were to blame for poverty and the poor were not equally to blame for the riches. Is there another difference between the two than that of capability and incapability of the capable and the incapable? This is quite spicy, this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, because this, 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 is, this is a very spicy part of the philosophy of right also makes us have an argument that really the oppressed are in a sense responsible because in their oppression they are like something that's extracted from by the oppressor and in a sense it's their production that equally reproduces their own position it's your inability to reassert yourself to sort of do like a death struggle that keeps you out of entering this this realm of autonomy and i think it's there's some sense in which dialectical materialists even try to do this because they say, well, look, you've, you've actually been producing your oppression the entire time. You just need to seize the means because they need our labor. Right. It's, it's, morally, it comes off as quite repugnant. But in terms of understanding where production is going, it's actually not, not necessarily as problematic as it comes comes off because no i mean it's just a much more blunt i guess it's just a less nice way of kind of the more orthodox marxist thing you hear a lot which is like the liberation of the working classes must be through the self-action the self-determination of the working class and sterner is just kind of saying that in a little bit more of a fuck you way he's like look you're responsible for your own oppression don't like it change it you know you have you have some powers i i almost said you have the power but i think Sterner would be like, you have some power, you know, use them, figure out what you can do. Sterner fucking hates the working class. With yourself about left should hate the working class because, like, we don't want we don't want to be we don't want to be ourselves. We want to like not be us. We should hate this position because it's a structural relationship, not a it's not actually an identity. It's not like an essence to us. We want to abolish ourselves. We fucking hate this. We don't want to. Well, yeah, that's exactly it. Sterner's kind of right. He's like, you're tired of tired of being a worker abolish yourself just you know just don't do it anymore yeah. you want to make the state of things awesome. impossible <laughs> if you have like a worker state it's like the, 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 event, the worker state wants to abolish being a worker so it's like, so just own it like fully own that position that we want to abolish ourselves we want to be this essential creative nothingness because we're kept in the position that we have an identity in it it's it's horrific horrific and extractive anti-working class leftism gain a lot of uh a lot of followers on <laughs> on that route. Hell yeah. This also called back to a sort of libidinal approach to desire a libidinal economy. The state endeavors to tame the desiring person. In other words, it seeks to direct his desire to itself alone and to appease this desire with what it offers. To satiate the desire of the desiring person's sake doesn't enter into its mind. On the contrary, it rebukes the human being who breathes out un bridal desire for being an egoistic human. The state is the main obstacle because the state generates the conditions that obstruct your ability to actually act in your own unfettered egoistic interest. Obviously, we bump up against this in plenty of arenas of life, but I mean, I don't think it's nowhere more starkly is it presented and, and nowhere with more power behind it is it found than in the state. You, need, you must renounce yourself before the state. Yeah, simple as. I mean, it's not as if every time you follow your desire, you're being egoistic. It's not every desire is an interaction, but sometimes right. your desire is in, is actually producive in this, this relationship of trying to satisfy certain phantasms and spectres. And if you, if you when Sterna says, I can kill people, I can't torture them, he can't, he's not going to be overcome with this incredible desire that is so sadistic, such that, because when you do this sort of, you sort of substantialize yourself over them as the oppressor and equally you sort of 
and you sort of say, like, I'm giving you substance. No, this, this, this finger attacking doesn't have substance. What the fuck are you doing to it? It's, it's, it's autonomy is equally as tied to you as, as, you, as yours is to it. So in sort of being overcome with this sort of incredible self-destructive sadism, you are also sort of destroying your own autonomy by not sort of losing yourself or anything. You find a sort of selfness because you think you put yourself in a position of, of mastery, of domination. Of trying to substantialize your position. It's not going, it's an end to it's never going to work. I take this in the direction of, I guess when I, I see this state, I'm making a distinction here. I would say maybe like the state and capital are synonymous in a certain regard here. And sort of this libidinal approach to this, or libidinal ec- economy approach here, that these directing desires of the egoist or the ego is what capitalism is doing through markets, through enforced scarcity or, or whatever, like, right? It's capitalism is manufacturing new spooks for you to sort of reify and seek in terms of desire or relative to desire, perhaps. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, capitalism is always in the business of producing something to convince you that you want to put in the way of you getting what you actually want. And I think you see this express itself perhaps most clearly in the aftermath of the whole George Floyd situation, right? Because mm-hmm. you have this sort of perfect storm of one, the lockdown that is impacting like the libidinal economy, the flows of desire, et cetera, et cetera, right? That are still being primed by advertising and like capitalist discourse just out as it operates through the world. So there's right. that sort of component of it. And then obviously the, I guess the incendiary the spark that the George Floyd death created let out this, like what, what else was all of that, but an expression of libidinal desire bursting out of its, of it, of its cage, you might say, right. It's not necessarily this logically thought out moment of insurrection. It is a spontaneous eruption of desire. And this is where like that notion of desire that the Deleuze and Guattari talk about in Leotard as well as this, sort of powerful force, almost gets, like I said, I think of it a lot now or have been thinking about it in terms of will to power and desire being that sort of having a similar or being sort of the same thing or maybe operating in a similar fashion. And so to control us, what does it do? It turns us into consumers, directing our desires towards these objects or this object or that object or what have you. You're playing the game, chasing the, chasing the carrot, but it's totally spooked, I guess, ultimately. Yeah. It takes us into a logic of exchange rather than a logic of, of expenditure. Whereas right. the logic, you're exchanging, you're exchanging pieces of yourself for alien objects that have, you know, as Mark would put it, under commodity, under commodity fascism, seem to have this alien supernatural sort of property to make you happy or make you whole or something. But really, you're already already whole because the whole of you is entirely complete and always will be because it's, it's, it's a fundamentally a, a nothingness uh, that can deorganize and reorganize itself. So really what, what you do when you have enjoy, when you do self-enjoyment, you have your property is you expend it, you dissolve it, you enjoy it. There's no need for this to have a higher meaning to serve a higher purpose. Right. right. Yeah. There's no like teleology to desire. Yes. Yeah. Teleology is recuperation. This next quote I think is really good. It gets to that. And especially I think the last sentence is, is the thing that I want to focus the attention on. My intercourse with the world, what does it aim at? I want to enjoy it. This is why it must be my property, and this is why I want to win it. I don't want the freedom nor the equality of human beings. I want only my power over them. I want to make them my property, i.e. make them enjoyable. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's really important. It's just in interacting with the world, it doesn't just take ownership of you. You also take ownership of it and stop put it, stop believing in all of the fictions that jam themselves between you and your actual enjoyment of the thing and just enjoy it for the sake of what it is. Make it your property. Don't be afraid to burn something up without getting something in return because that's what enjoyment is. I like this notion of taking other people in my power and making them my property, making them enjoyable. That's kind of a funny, I guess, reversal. I guess maybe think about, instead of thinking about the German roots of property, so I, Eigentum, it's, the term is like a, like a, like a dumb, but the dumb in kingdom. So it's like my selfdom, my, the realm of my autonomy. If you incorporate humans to the realm of your autonomy, it's, it's an affirm, affirming of your autonomy through them to also, of course, because mm-hmm. of the empathetic nature, also treats them as autonomous. So I just, I just want to keep reaffirming that no, this is, this is not a justification for being a dick. Yeah, this next quote to <laughs> <laughs> I see you 14 years on Twitter trying to get a Nick Land follow back. You cannot use this, this, this book for your evil means. And this next quote to you. My intercourse with the world consists in this, that I enjoy it and so consume it for my self-enjoyment. Intercourse is the enjoyment of the world and belongs to my self-enjoyment. Intercourse is to find this mutuality. <laughs> right, yeah. I love this too, like this distinction. I had posted this a while back on Twitter. More, more intercourse or like broke discourse, woke intercourse, which I thought was the perfect way to like, I like this usage of intercourse. Yeah, it's really good. It's got the like libidinal hook into it, but also the way that Sterner is specifically using it too. My intercourse with the world consists in this, that I enjoy it and so consume it for my self-enjoyment. Intercourse is the enjoyment of the world and belongs to my self-enjoyment. Intercourse is the enjoyment of the world and belongs to my self-enjoyment. Yeah, I mean, this is just one of those things, right, where it feels like Sterner is saying things that should be obvious, but that people forget Forget, all the time. Right. Yeah, it's like in order to have an enjoyment of the world, you have to interact with something that's external to you and and build these relationships with it. And then only through like acknowledging that can you have the, I don't even know what it would be like, circumspectness to not become fettered to those relationships in a way that no longer mm. serves you. And a proper sort of understanding of one's autonomy is necessary. You can't have intercourse with the world about having a proper understanding of your own autonomy and what autonomous egoistic practice like means. To keep on with a bit of metaphor, it's literally just the idea of like, informed consent with the world. Right. <laughs> it's, uh, sure, yeah. Especially in the concept of, or in the context of intercourse for the double entendre, <laughs> yeah. right? We're working with uh, three-part entendres now, dialectical. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like I said, I've been reading libidinal economy. Desire is something that I've been obsessed with for like the last several years. So this enjoyment that Sterner is talking about in the context of the world, I don't know, that just has, has a certain purchase, I think, with me as far as tapping into that, that ungover- yeah, ungovernable I mean, desire. The main thing that this section going over this section with you has taught me is that I need to actually read Leotard, which is very disheartening to hear because I'm (laughs) struggling to finish the books I already have. (laughs) Oh, no, I feel you there. I have a whole sued stack to go through. Yeah, I got my my sued stack going real strong right now. Bookmarks 20% of the way in each book. We'll finish on this last quote and then, uh, then we can wrap up for the day. A human being is called to nothing and has no mission, no purpose, no more than a plant or a beast has a calling. The flower doesn't follow the calling to complete itself, 
but applies all its forces to enjoy and consume the world as best it can, i.e. it sucks in as much of the Earth's juices, as much of the ether's air, as much of the sun's light as it can get and accommodate. The bird doesn't live up to any calling, but it uses its forces as much as possible. It catches bugs and sings to its heart's delight. But the forces of the flower and the bird are small compared to those of a human being. And a human being who uses his forces will intervene in the world much more powerfully than a flower or a beast. He has no calling, but he has forces that manifest themselves where they are because their being consists solely in their manifestation and can no more remain idle than life, which if it stood still for even a second would no longer be life. I love this. This is such a great confrontation of just the kind of immutable experiential facts of being. And also a really good answer to people's question of what is my purpose here on earth? What am I meant to do with my life? You're not fucking meant to do anything with your life. You shouldn't be upset to learn that. You should be quite excited. That's freedom or a form of freedom right there, at least. So go exercise your faculties because, you know, how lucky you are to be a person who can turn a doorknob and speak a sentence and not a fucking bird or a flower, God help you. Because the calling thing is, reminds me, so I think I said earlier about the alpha, alpha set stuff, but it could be where you are called into ideology, but in rejection of this ideological structure, a like human being is called to nothing. I mean, yeah, because I think the term human being is used here, which is interesting because, I mean, human being is a characteristic of the sub of right. the group, nothing for Sterner. So human being is called to nothing. Because he's saying a human being here, I meant, you know, that's saying he's not really talking about the abstraction of the human being. The human being is, is called to nothing, yes, but the egoist isn't called to anything either. The calling really isn't um, an end, uh, always transcendentally beyond the, 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 the being, but rather the being's um, calling is, is its growth, and that's in, implicit in, in the being itself, in its self-differentiation. The, the being is epigenetic. Oh, interesting. In that sense, it's epigenetic. It's in, Hegel uses a, this example similarly in the preface to the Phenomenology of Spirit. He talks about the, the seed as it developed into a plant. It's all sort of implicit as the principle of its, of its own death development and differentiation. But it doesn't live up to any calling. It uses its forces. It has a force. It can express itself. It's, it's, it's purely self-expressive. It's not being... It's not obligated. It's not spooked to expend by itself. Anything, yeah. In a sense. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> It's, it's forces our self-expression. It's very sort of Deleuzean. It's, sort of, it's a flow. Yeah, it's a it's pure a, it's a flow. It's a yeah. pure flow of will and or desire or desire as will. Maybe like that's what I think here because it's saying like the birds don't feel they're in bad faith relative to desire because they are fully pursuing their will. They they are not spooked by by abstractions. They are purely existing in the like material flows of of will and desire. Life cannot stand still. Life is a process. Of, it's, it's, basically, it's basically an argument for being as becoming. Yeah. You know, life, if, life stopped, if life stood still, yeah. stand still for a moment, it's no longer life. So even at, even at the present moment, the present immediacy, there is still a me- The only thing that's immediate isn't the fixity of this moment here and now. It's the, it's the immediacy of a flux. And flux is, is self. Flux something as a, a sequence of present moments. You know, let's say now, immediately, it's mediated and actually now the, the now is preserved, but the moment I was referring to is completely gone. And this is, it's, it's a, a kind of a meta-stability of, of immediacy. The, the immediacy of mediacy, the fact that both of them are uh, actually 
specifically uh, aligned. So in a sense, there is no fixed calling other than that, which really you can posit for your own act of willing. You can translate your own thinking into being, but you're just translating sort of your own force. Your own so, force of will? The own, yeah, your own force of will, your own force of negative self-assertion, the own force of your being. Because you can't really, you can, you can end your being by becoming something else, but you can't really sort of, you're not really choosing to be, you're asserting your being as, you can't really assert your own static nature, you can only reassert your being in the process of becoming something else, an expression of your own inner capacities, of your own sort of living currency of yourself. Oh, that's really good. Yeah, because a static identity can't happen twice. It only happens once. It's once, a, yeah. It, it's a, it is by its own self-definition static. So, yeah, only only through, I guess, I, I keep falling back on like <laughs> really new agey words. I'm like, only through growth and development, <laughs> but only through change, only through the process of movement, I guess. Can we can we even establish ourselves as a thing? Yeah, as Bataille says in Sacred Spiritually, we must become completely different or else cease to be. Only it's not a choice. You either become completely different and do this becoming or you simply cease to be. Because if you, if you become static, all the processes start moving, all the neurons start firing, all the blood starts pumping, and you don't actually become like this static being. You just uh, shit yourself and die and life goes on. <laughs> so yeah, either let yourself be the ship of Theseus or mm. die. <laughs> Those mm. are your options. And be the and be the ship for the worms. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or for Sterner, the flies. How can a king pass through the innards of a beggar? Prop slow roasted, I don't know, for six hours or so maybe. Yeah. More easily <laughs> than a camel passes through the eye of a needle? I don't know. <laughs> oh well the, the joke is that the king dies and goes back into the soil and then blah 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 the Oh right. The peasant eats something that is derived from the whatever the nutrients that the king gave back to the earth or whatever. Yeah, but what that doesn't foresee is modern neoliberal capitalism, which will just <laughs> sell you carrots that are specifically from the dead king patch of earth for only ninety nine ninety nine per carrot. It's the value of everything ending up at its opposite. I, I always, I think, I've always, I think you brought this up last time I was on, but it's my favorite anecdote of Hegel getting in trouble with the Prussian state. He wrote to uh, an education minister and said that to worship the communion wafer is actually having the substance of God in it is equally to worship the rat shit will become later. <laughs> Hell yeah. That's amazing. I think you I'm surprised he that. said that. Well, <laughs> but that rules so much. There's something interesting, like I'll wrap up on this <clears throat> thought is it's interesting that Deleuze makes this statement that the, what's at the heart of dialect of the dialectics nihilism. And then like on the other side, Leotard is saying that, semiotics is also nihilism and in the context of this quote it's like that is sort of like nihilism is good in the sense that if there's if there's not an overdetermination of even the i right there's and if you're getting lacanian with the mm. i that gap or that that lack that that non-presence that is constitutive I think that non-presence is what opens up the space for freedom, right? Becoming. Because if everything is locked into these universal categories, then how can we be free if there's no space for something, right? If everything is this unified whole that's sort of solidified, although maybe that's not the way to look at universals. Yeah, it's almost like if everything didn't ultimately come from nothing, like if there wasn't this Nile at the center or at the origin of everything, then 
nothing would move. We would live in a static universe instead of an right. animated one. Yeah, exactly. It's like that that lack causes motion. And that's that's awesome. And it's interesting how many different branches of thought arrive right. at a conclusion that ends up being a summary of that in, yeah. in some kind of way. It's interesting because Leotard as well has this idea. He thinks about this very much in like a in like a thermodynamic model almost. He although he doesn't like explicitly say it, but he's got the right. the bar, which is like the Caesarean bar bar across whatever the subject or whatever the case may be. And if these flows of desire and intensity are sort of they dissipate on one side and then they fill up on the other. And it's sort of this like seesaw of flows of energy back and forth traversing the bar or whatever. And like this very, this kind of like if you had, I don't know, if you heated up water with dye in it, right? In two different things and there's a membrane between them, right? The membrane could be the bar. Right. And so the things will dissipate like on one side and then they'll sort of settle out and balance. But there's sort of like this equilibrium, this great zero is kind of like where Leotard goes. Yeah, that's all. Awesome. I mean, in that direction. And it's yeah, sort of so somewhat the, the, inspired by Lacan, but not, it's a little bit different, I think, than Lack, but I don't know. So the libidinal economy is basically a lava lamp. Is yeah, what you're exactly. Telling. Pretty much. That yes. Rules. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good way to think about the flows of desire. Yeah. The way that it works on this kind of, if you're doing this sort of topological psychoanalysis, which I think is super interesting. It's something that even like Freud got into and then Lacan, like, especially later Lacan sort of really runs with it in weird ways with all of the like Boromian not stuff. But unless you, unless either one of you had any final thoughts, I think we can wrap up there. Really fantastic work by Sterner here in terms of just, I'm just going to hammer on the final points that the Sterner intercourse is fundamentally mutuality. It requires right. the, a mutual autonomy between different beings as a part of one's own autonomy no, you can't just do whatever you want. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I'm imposing my Oedipal authority here. Anyway, you wouldn't want to do what you want all the time anyway, because uh, yeah. I'm telling you that. <laughs> yeah. It's not being too beautiful about it, but yeah. Schoene is a quite a measured uh, practical autonomist. He's a great proto-communizer, great proto-destituate power guy. I wish they could probably read him more than they seem to imply to. And I've, if you're going to ask uh, Absolute Spirit for something this Christmas, Get the unique of this property translated by that nonce. Who can answer the nonce? I think contextualizing this notion that wealth and joy and enjoyment can only exist in the social, while also realizing that the fundamental aim or like the one of the fundamental drives is the certain will or desire or whatever you want to call it, like egoism. There is that certain thing, but it can only be realized through others, through the social. And I think that's the impert, important thing that people need to recognize about what's saying yep. more than anything it's not just i do what i want that's not that's not true egoism autonomy is a conscious well, a collective a... post-capitalist desire yes Hell yeah. boom yep. bing yes exactly just thinking of Scherner not just as an individual a theorist of individuality or uniqueness or whatever but a theorist of that because it's relevant to social relationships he's a social philosopher i think People just don't realize that. And I think even a casual reading of a, a decent translation of the unique in its property really brings that to the front. Do you want to plug anything and then we'll, uh, we'll shut it down? Oh, yeah. Um, my name's John Paul Zigderman. 
thank you so much for having me on the show. As always, I'm always glad to be here. I have two other shows. They're called Beep Beep Lettuce and Work Stoppage. And I also stream on Twitch on Saturday. Um, always amazing to be chatting uh, Sterner with you guys. Um, I think never get to play talk about Sterner, so it's amazing. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm on a, pod- I, on a podcast with uh, some wonderful other guys called Acid Horizon. Just have a latest ep- uh, episode out on um, with Arya Dean from Rhizome Magazine, uh, talking about black accelerationism. And um, I also write articles on Sterner, Bataille, Hegel, and at a Happy Hour at Hipples uh, on WordPress. So yeah, cheers for having me on. Pleasure to have you both, and of course Elliot Rosenstock, author of Zizek in the Clinic, and he's got a new book coming out. It's the Dialectical Dream Theory of Egoism or something like that. But this will be Cooper Cherry and the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour signing off for the week. Of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is